The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. All right, everybody, we are live. We are live. I'm here in Austin, Texas. I've got my good buddy, Ben Rubenstein, here with me. And we're going to have a great stream uh, here. It's going to be going to be absolutely awesome. It's going to be great. Uh, we're just going to get things going on all platforms, make sure we're going live on Rockfin. We are on Rockfin, by the way, and we will soon be, uh, we will soon, you know, you know, soon be on a lot more different platforms. We're live on YouTube and we're live on Rockfin. And actually, um, he's in a little bit of a hurry, so we'll just jump right into it. We have a very special guest with us. He was a special guest this weekend at our, our conference for the Center for Political Innovation. And since we're just starting out here, um, I think, I guess we'll play the intro music and then we'll bring on our guest, Jackson Hinkle. So we'll have the intro music and then we'll have Jackson. The century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, it's just a byproduct of capitalism. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. All right, so now our special guest, the great Jackson Hinkle. How are you? Hey, Jackson. How's it going, you guys? Great. Yeah, we're here in Austin, Texas, and you're getting to, ready to head out of town, right? Yeah, how's my connection? Oh, it's great. We can hear you just fine. Can you hear us? Okay. Yeah, I can. Uh, it's a little bit choppy in the intro, but look at where I am right now. I'm uh, oh, sitting wow. outside the old Austin uh, power plant. You can't really see it, but there's like the three pillars up. Hmm. Oh, you froze there for just a minute. Uh, can you can you still hear us, Jackson? You're above the power plant, and then you froze. Um, oh, that's what... oh, oh, you're back. Can you hear us now, Jackson? There you, there you go. So, if yeah. It, if um, that keeps happening, I might have to move around and find a better spot. We'll sure. See. So I guess we can start out. Um, do you want to just kind of give us your reaction to the conference? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought it was incredible. Thank you so much for putting it all together. Uh, I was first and foremost just shocked at the amount of people that were there. Uh, and I think I think a lot of people probably were because, you know, in the past we've done things like force the vote. We've done things, uh, you know, like the capital steps protests with this similar vein of, uh, you know, people who are organizing around these issues. And uh, it's always few and far between the individuals that actually show up to these events. But, uh, and, I, and you know, I was thinking like, geez, like Austin, Texas, like really, how, how many people are we gonna get at this event? Like, I don't know, maybe we filled, maybe we filled the room, I don't know. And then uh, we all walked in as security escorted us in uh and it was a full room there was no empty seats it was incredible 
And uh, that was the first shocking thing. And it was really beautiful to see that. Um, and then the, I think the other, like, I mean, we can talk about like details and stuff, but the other really big thing for me was uh, there was, there was a guy there um, who uh, he was, he was on the premises of the event, we'll say, and he was a diehard Trump. Uh, he happened to be listening to our event and uh, everything that the speakers had to say. And he was born and raised in Texas. And uh, he, he, at the breakaway point, like halfway through, he came up to me and we. Oh, you froze again there, Jackson. Um, you froze, uh, but you were telling us, uh, can you hear us? I'm going to try to walk around and find a better. Yeah. yeah. You were telling us about the guy who came up to you uh, at the halfway break of the event. Well, I think he said it was a Trump supporter. Right? right, right. It was a Trump supporter who came up to him at the halfway break of the event. It was a guy who just happened to be around the hotel, is, is what he was saying. Oh, oh, he's moving to a different spot where he'll have better reception. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah. So, so what happened? The Trump supporter walked up to you. Connection's a little bit bad here. Sure, sure. Um, let me let me let me move over a little bit. Sure, sure. I think there's probably better connection over here. Sure thing. Anyways, you can hear me now, so I'll, oh, I'll sure. just finish this you. part of the story. Um, it was really interesting because uh, we were sitting there and we were just like having lunch and stuff. And he said, you know, I'm a diehard Trump conservative, born and raised in this country with patriots. But uh, he's like, I don't really know what the specific labels are of your group that is speaking today. But he said, I've never seen anything like it. He's like, and uh, he's like, I don't agree with everything that's been said here. But uh, you guys are really uh, winning me over with this message and you're resonating with me. And I think the most important thing that I probably heard him say was like, I don't know. He said, I, I don't know. I just feel like I can trust you guys. I don't trust these politicians. We've done political events before. I feel like I can trust you guys. Wow. I thought that was really cool. That is very cool. Yeah. That is really great. Yeah, the, the weekend all just had this really positive vibe. You know, everyone who was there, I mean, it, it seemed like, you know, like a place that people belong, you know? I mean, there wasn't a moment that was uncomfortable, I didn't think. No, no. And, um, you know, all the speakers were great. The speeches were great. Um, everyone kind of brought something different to the table, which was really cool. And, uh, yeah, I felt like it was a very defining moment in this in this current climate in this current era that i feel like hasn't been really done yet and i feel like it's going to set the course for you know the future of of like our uh, current of politics which really hasn't been represented by any any wing of like a coherent political body in the united states for decades so i thought it was really cool and i um i really like pause's speech i like your speech uh i can't wait till the videos get uploaded for everyone to see yeah, your presentation was great. You talked about Ukraine and the 2004 Orange Revolution and everything that led up to where we are right now. Um, and it was really important because if you watch CNN, you would think this all just started a couple weeks ago. You know, that Putin was having a bad day or, or was mentally ill and just decided he wanted to roll into Ukraine. 
you know, and you gave the background that no one is getting on this. Uh, do you want to you want to reflect on some of what was in your remarks and why it's important for people to hear? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for people to understand the full context of Ukraine and Russia, because um, I will say, like, most Americans do have, like, a distrust of government and the media. But the fog of war is so thick surrounding this very topic that I think despite the uh, general instinct of most Americans to not trust what's being fed to them by the likes of Pelosi and George Soros and Chuck Schumer and Adam Schiff and all the others, you know, uh, who run this country and the deep state that, uh, you know, governs foreign policy here. I, I believe the fog of war is really so thick that a lot of people have fallen for this. Now, uh, fortunately, the very people who would fight in a conventional war and participate in a conventional war with Ukraine, uh, specifically, it's a uh, lower class, uh, non-college educated men are pretty much opposed to U.S. military intervention in Ukraine right now, which is good. So there are some people who are saying no to this. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, there's, there's still a lot of misinformation with the fly zones, all this stuff. With the speech I did, I wanted to paint a clear picture as to how this all started. Uh, the war did not start this month. You guys know that. I We all know that. Uh, the war started after a U.S. coup in Ukraine in 2014. I even talked back in 2004 with regard to the Orange Revolution, which was the first color revolution in Ukraine. And, um, you know, they, they it, that color revolution was nowhere near as, uh, as big of an overhaul as we saw in 2014. And in 2014, with that massive bloody overhaul of the democratically elected government, you saw resistance, popular resistance move, uh, movements in Donetsk and Luhansk and Donbass and in Odessa um, and in other areas of Ukraine. But those were the main ones. And those were the main ones that the government and the military specifically, these ultranationalists and neo-Nazi militias uh, were tapped to basically stifle. And they did that through uh, bloody means. They did that through slaughtering innocent people, peaceful people. Um, and that's what we've witnessed over the past eight years in Donetsk and Luhansk. We saw, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. and the Ukrainian governments uh, funding and arming uh, ultranationalists and neo-Nazi militias in arms of the Ukrainian military to slaughter these resistance groups and rebel groups who, in Donetsk and Luhansk specifically, we're trying to break away and form their own people's republics, which they have now done. Uh, 14,000 people died in the fighting over the past eight years. And I hesitate to call it just a war. It was asymmetric war. Um, most of the heavy artillery was you know, brought in from the side of Ukraine, uh, given to the likes of the Azov Battalion. 81% of the civilians who died in this uh, conflict died on the side of, uh, or sorry, 81% of the civilian casualties in the past three years were on the side of Donetsk and Luhansk. So um, it really was an asymmetric war. And anyone who tries to paint what has happened over the past month with Ukraine and Russia as like a new beginning rather than a continuation of a uh, eight-year conflict um, is painting a revisionist history. And I thought it was important to do that and people will hear all the details in the speech, but mainly it's important to do that because um, it's important to show how Russia has been engaging diplomatically with the West for these past eight years uh, as they move into the age of multipolarity. You know, um, recognizing a public referendum in Crimea in 2014 to join the Russian Federation, for example, uh, trying to get all political parties to adhere to the Minsk Agreement. 
Um, Putin was very, very restrained in his response to the aggression by Ukraine and NATO-aligned powers over these past eight years. And it is just now that we see him kind of lay down the hammer, so to speak. And I wish it didn't have to be this way, but um, that's what you do. You can't treat Russia like they are a small uh, state power that can be walked over like the United States has done to Syria and Libya and Iran and Venezuela and so many other countries. Sure, absolutely. Um, now, uh, we had heavy security at the conference and they seemed to do their job pretty well. They removed the potential disruptors and such. Um, but do you want to talk about kind of the atmosphere, you know, how we had to kind of like, be, you know, kind of sneak in almost, you know, how they, they rushed us in from uh, the place we were waiting and stuff. I mean, with the, the red guards and now there's this video by this crazy person who was there with the, the purple makeup and all of that. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah I mean, thank God we had uh, security there. I, I was really worried. Um, I saw people, I saw these Red Guard and these Austin DSA types posting on, uh, and you saw it, and that's why, you know, the security was hired. But saw them posting on, like, Twitter and stuff the week leading up to the uh, events, the CPI event, and saying stuff like, well, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm not even joking, you guys. They do, like, horrific things. Like, they, uh, sure, you can have political disagreements with people, but they have political disagreements with people like pro-life protesters. And they go to their protests or their gatherings, their political gatherings, and throw smoke bombs at them. Like, it's insane what they do. And they said, oh, if we could throw smoke bombs at pregnant women who are pro-life protesting, imagine what we're going to do to CPI. So, yeah. um, you know, it's it's crazy. And thank God that, again, they were there because there were people who were removed. Um, it looked like there was just, like, one or two people in there who kind of managed to... Uh, you know, blend in with the crowd and they film stuff. And I guess that was the worst that they did was film stuff and post it. <laughs> but uh, it could have been a lot worse. It could, And we, yeah, we had to like sneak in secretly. Um, it was a very professional, uh, you know, security uh, coverage. And I'm, I'm thankful for it. Yeah. Well, I really hope you'll join us at the next one. We're looking to do this in mid-May in Chicago. So I hope you can be there for that uh, in, in a little bit. Um, that's our hope. Um, you know, it was a really successful weekend. We really appreciate your, your remarks. I mean, your talk was tremendous, by the way, just a really good overall history and peak of the left and everything we needed to hear. So thank you very much. And I, I know you got a flight to catch, so we you keep you too much longer. But do you want to add anything before you go? I hope as many people as uh, possible come out to the Chicago event in May. Uh, pending, you know, schedule stuff, like I, I'll definitely be there. And uh, mm -hmm. I look forward to more of these because, um, you know, the first one was a major success. I mean, we had so many people there and great speakers. And, um, you know, these, these issues we talk about are not going away. And uh, as, as the synthetic left, as you have labeled it, identified, I think that's a very apt way to identify them. They, they they are literally crumbling before our very eyes. Like they're they're crumbling, and then in some cases they're blending in with the likes of Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke. So no one trusts that. No one believes in that. Uh, it's a failed ideology. And um, you know we post something new. We post something exciting. We post something that strikes at the heart of you know uh, it really really evokes like a, an emotional response from the heart of every American, and uh, whether they're conservative or left or whatever you know so. Um, I look forward to building this with you guys and thank you for the work. And thank you for coming out. And it was a, it was a very powerful and successful weekend. Uh, much appreciated and have a good flight. Uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you very much. All right. Jackson. See you guys. You. Peace. Yep.
Great. Well, that was Jackson Hinkle uh, giving his reflections on the conference we had this weekend. Um, so much that we could talk about, so many deceptions. The, the current line that we're getting from U.S. media is that this whole crisis in Ukraine was caused by Putin's mental health. You heard this, Ben? I've heard it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's all caused by Putin's personal mental health. Putin's just having a breakdown, and uh, that caused it. That's really interesting because back in 1997, before Putin was the Russian president, the Russian leader, uh, we have a clip of a certain Joe Biden, uh, and this is what he said. Place greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for mission have nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO Russian U.S. Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. So the way I look at the calculus here. Yeah. So we have, you know, we have Biden saying the only thing that could possibly lead to this is if more countries started joining NATO. He's on the clip saying that that if, you know, if more countries start joining NATO, if Baltic states start joining NATO, if NATO continues expanding, a conflict between the United States and, and NATO countries in Russia could break out. He's saying that before Putin was ever in power. Uh, so it seems pretty clear that uh, this is not caused by Putin's mental health. This is a legit security concern on the part of Russia, right? If you have a hostile military alliance creeping closer and closer to your borders, um, at some point, uh, there's going to be a response. And NATO has always been hostile to Russia. It was formed to counter the rise of the Soviet Union and the people's democracies after the Second World War. Um, so, I mean, it's it's particularly outrageous. It really just kind of shows you how shallow the analysis is. I mean, we've already seen the clip of, of Kamala Harris, and she gave analysis of it, which is basically Russia, big country, Ukraine, small country, Russia attack Ukraine, big country attack small country, this wrong. And that's her analysis of the whole conflict. Um, I mean, you know, it, it shows you how shallow these things really are. And that, you know, one thing that people are not taking into account is that Russia worked really, really, really hard to try and not have this happen. The Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic asked for recognition from Russia back in 2014. Russia said no. And instead, Russia facilitated the Minsk Accords and the Minsk negotiations. They wanted Ukraine to integrate the republics back into Ukrainian society, give them autonomy and bring them in under the Minsk agreements. And the Minsk agreement was not implemented. That's the most important thing here. If, if Russia had just wanted to seize uh, Donetsk and Lugansk because the people there are Russian speaking, they would have done that in 2014. They specifically didn't do that. And they set up the Minsk Accords. They worked to facilitate an agreement where these regions would be integrated back into Ukrainian society. And the Ukrainians did not follow the treaty and they didn't carry out the Minsk Accords. They did not fulfill their obligations. And Russia waited for seven years after the Minsk Accords were signed. Now, in 2022, after an agreement that was not signed and not put, you know, put into practice from 2015 has been ignored, now Russia is taking action. And let's also keep in mind, they took action to stop a massacre. And no one's talking about this, but basically... You know, people people have, have gone after me. I just want to talk about this. So there's clips of me saying that Russia is not going to invade Ukraine. And people are like, oh, Russia's invaded Ukraine. We got you. We got you. Well, Russia's not invading Ukraine. Depends what definition you use of invading. But but what's happened was this, that that about about a month ago, 
we had the United States going around saying Russia is about to invade Ukraine. And Russia was like, no, we're not. And they said, no, Russia is about to invade Ukraine. And Russia said, no, we really aren't going to invade Ukraine. They pointed to the military exercises that Russia was doing in Belarus. And they said, oh, these military exercises in Belarus, that means you're going to invade Ukraine. And Russia said, we do that every year. We informed you we were going to do that. We're not going to invade Ukraine. But the USA wouldn't drop this. So believe it or not, you never saw this on American media, but we saw a video of it. I mean, it, it was definitely happening. Russia started moving their troops away from the border. Have you seen the video? They, yeah, they were moving their troops away from the border to appease the United States. Just because the United States was so adamant Russia was about to invade Ukraine, they were moving their troops away from the border. And then the shelling escalated. Bombs went off in Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, and, uh, and at that point, it was clear that what the United States was doing was they were getting ready to facilitate the Ukrainian government going into Lugansk and Donetsk and slaughtering these people. And the whole idea was to try to intimidate Russia and, and basically make Russia afraid to move in and protect these people from the slaughter. Well, Russia, Russia made clear, though, they were not going to be intimidated, and they did move in to protect these people. And the, the slaughter that was planned, the massacre that was being planned, was prevented by Russia recognizing Lugansk and Donetsk and moving their forces in. So basically, this was Russia moving in to prevent a massacre, and now they're moving in to take apart the Ukrainian military. That, that you know, all those high-tech weapons the United States has poured into Ukraine, that Azov battalion that's committed atrocities, they're ripping it apart. Um, and so basically, Russia moved in to prevent a massacre and to try and end an eight-year war uh, and that's not reported. So these people are like, oh, Caleb said they're not going to invade Ukraine, and they did. No, they they were not. Uh, they were not trying to. You know, it was the United States that provoked this, essentially. Number one, and number two, uh, they're not invading Ukraine. They have no intention of like absorbing Ukraine into the Russian Federation. The idea is to break apart the Ukrainian military and secure the protection of the people in Lugansk and Donetsk, and that means not only you know moving their troops to protect the people in the eastern regions. It also means breaking apart this this fascistic extremist military that the United States has facilitated in Ukraine. And all they would have to do to end this, and this is the most crazy thing, all, all the Ukrainian government would have to do to end this is, you know, recognize Lugansk and Donetsk's independence as well as Crimea. and, and Crimea's. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, agree to be neutral and not be a uh, U.S. aligned country and not, you know, have U.S. weapons piling in, not join NATO. And if Ukraine can be neutral and it can recognize these people's independence after they've made clear they will not let these people integrate back into Ukrainian society, um, then the fighting ends. But they won't do that. And that's, you know, all this this heart beating from U.S. leaders about Ukraine. They care about Ukraine so much. It's all theatrics. They want Ukrainians to die and keep dying because they want to hurt Russia. That's what's going on here. They want the body count in Ukraine to keep rising. They want Ukrainians to keep dying because this is about hurting Russia. It has nothing to do with, with caring about Ukraine, because if they cared about Ukraine, the US and NATO folks who control and tell Zelensky what to do, it's not an independent country, he's not an independent actor, they would tell them to just sign the treaty and end it, but they won't do that. It's not about helping Ukrainians. This is about fighting Russia, and that's what this is about, and we have to be absolutely clear on that. Um, so actually, we have with us a special guest. He joined us yesterday, but. Tom, my good friend Tom Mitchlack from Detroit is coming on. And Tom actually had some interesting experiences because he's met some of these victims uh, of the conflict uh, that, that U.S. media has ignored. He actually has been to Russia and met some of the victims of the Ukrainian Azov Battalion and shelling. So come on in, Tom. Come on in. Have a seat. Have a seat. Welcome. Welcome back, Tom. How you doing?
and um, you were in Russia, and you kind of you witnessed the shelling. Or I guess you witnessed, you, you spoke with people who were victims of, of what's going on in Eastern Ukraine. Can you talk about that? I did. I went to, well, the, the occasion uh, that brought me to Russia was the one-year anniversary of Maidan in Ukraine. I attended the anti-Maidan demonstration in Moscow, which was very widely attended. It was an international news event that was taking place. It also just happened to be the 75th or the 70th anniversary of the Yalta conference. And so um, it was a very, with what's going on in Ukraine, to have to ask the question in the modern day, why can't the United States and Russia get along like they once did in an effort to defeat fascism? And on my trip, I did go to a children's hospital in Moscow that had children from the Donbass region, uh, many of whom were horrifically maimed. Um, and some of them I spoke to. Uh, many people like to talk about, you know, the, the lived experiences of people. And people, these same people want, you know, with regards to Ukraine. Like, oh, well, you know, you, you, you can't speak on the war in Ukraine. You don't know what it's like to have uh, shelling upon your head. But this only applies to, it's very, it's, it's very selectively applied. It doesn't sure. apply to Russian-speaking children. Mm -hmm. um, and there was one boy that I met. His name was Vanya. He lost his legs. He lost his arms. He was blinded by shrapnel. He was seven years old when I spoke to him. His younger brother, Artyom, was killed, unfortunately. He was four years old. Uh, up to that point, they were living in basements to avoid the, the shelling of the Kiev regime. And, you know, one thing that really broke my heart is he told me when I spoke to him that what he liked to do most of all before being injured was he liked to run, ride his bike, and most of all, he said he liked to win. Wow. And, you know, these are the things that never got a moment. Uh, no, no one seemed to care. Yeah, these yeah. lives don't matter, according to U.S. media. These lives just don't matter. Uh, I mean, that's just the attitude that they have. Look, Don, Don Deering in New York, he said, I read that the 14,000 figure is between 2014 and 2020, actually. So there must be more by now. I haven't seen the U.N. document. But that's what I read. So it's more than 14,000 of these people that have been killed. And what's shocking is on the internet, there's all these, you know, pro-Ukraine, you know, bots and trolls out there. And whenever you bring up this number of 14,000 people killed in these regions, uh, they'll respond with, oh, yeah, well, they're just separatists. Mm -hmm. So they don't matter, right? right. 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 Because they're Russian-speaking, uh, because they don't recognize the government that the USA legally installed in Kiev in 2014, uh, they, they don't matter. Oh, no, those aren't people. They're separatists. And I believe that was actually said. During the Odessa massacre. Exactly. I was following, the, the, what prompted me to go to Russia on this occasion in the first place was my intense uh, following of the situation in Ukraine. And simultaneously, I'm watching literally a live feed of the Odessa massacre taking place. I'm seeing it with my own eyes. And then meanwhile, I'm listening to NPR on the radio, mm -hmm. and they're telling me that, oh, they're just kind of uh, uh, casually reporting an instance of clashes at, uh, in Odessa between police and rebels, and a fire broke out. Uh, it's a very innocuous way to put neo-Nazis and ultranationalists chasing uh, uh, just essentially uh, peace activists, you could say, into a building, setting it on fire, and those who jump out are beaten and shot. That's, that's one way to put it. But, you know, they're just... Yeah, there's a clip uh, from video of the Odessa massacre where where there's a woman who jumped out of the building, I believe, burning building. Right after these Ukrainian fascists lit a building on fire, this woman jumps out of the building, 
And one of the Ukrainians goes to, to rush at her with a baseball bat. The other says, no, stop. She's a woman. And then he replies and said, no, she's not a woman. She's a separatist. Uh-huh. And then they That's the NPR line. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just it's, it's unbelievable. And and again, you know, they make it sound like this just started. All of a sudden, there's this huge amount of mourning for the victims in Ukraine. We're finding out that a lot of these videos they're showing us aren't even real videos. OK, keep that in mind. But people every you know, today, uh, you know, just recently, I mean, earlier today in, in Donetsk, you know, uh, uh, 20 civilians were killed by a rocket fired, you know, and I posted about this, right, that, that you know, that the Ukrainians shot this rocket, they killed 20 people, 23 people, other people were injured. And I had people, yeah, well, what about what Putin's doing? Well, we know now that a lot of the video uh, that uh, uh, allegedly showing the, the suffering of Ukrainian civilians is from Syria, mm-hmm. is from Libya, is from Palestine, is from yeah. video games, right? So it's like a lot of the, the a lot of the, the images they're showing us of Ukrainian suffering aren't real, number one. And then number two, there's there's been people dying and suffering for the past eight years in the eastern regions, but they just don't matter according to America. It's amazing that it's actually very revealing that the, the, the depths that they have to sink to to even drudge up fake distortions of what's going on in Ukraine are crimes committed by the people that are urging you to stand with Ukraine today. That's it's actually true. tremendous. It, it, it's it's uh, this is probably I mean in my lifetime this is probably one of most overwhelming uh, propaganda campaigns and just drenched in phoniness and hypocrisy. Something I've never seen in my lifetime. That's absolutely okay. mm-hmm. Yeah, we're trying to get our microphone here working. It just so it, it, we got the the uh, the regular. Our microphone's back on. So there we go. Microphone's back on, so your audio's coming through well. Okay. Right. We're figuring out the tech of doing this. I've normally just been doing streams where I just talk into my phone. I just hold my phone up and talk into my phone. But mm-hmm. now we're doing it all fancy with the webcam and the step and repeat behind us and, and all of that. It's a good setup. Yeah, and that's why, you know, I know that the people of Donetsk uh, and Lugansk already know about our conference, right? Um, they, they haven't seen the video yet because the video is not yet available. They saw that we were there with the flag. They saw that we were there with the Z, which is the symbol of Russia's military denazification mm-hmm. campaign. And I, I and it meant the world to them, yeah. right? I mean, it must have meant the world to them. There's people here in the heart of the empire who actually care about them, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think our conference was a smashing success. We just heard from Jackson Hinkle talking about it. Um, and uh, we're the only people, for the most part, who are willing to, I mean, we're getting, there's a lot of ridicule online of, you know, that we're, you know, we're supporting what Putin is doing. Oh, yeah. you know, like unironic. Un- mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, as going back to the Odessa massacre, the, the Russian officials know the names of the participants of the Odessa massacre. And, you know, if, and if, if the tables were turned, it's events like the Odessa massacre that can serve as a catalyst for all manner of imperialist intrigue and intervention. But, you know, now, but because the tables are turned, it's completely uh, swept under the rug and we're getting this phony uh, narrative. Every, everything about it, whether whether it be the president of Ukraine himself, the so-called President Zelensky, being a literal actor puppet, a phony to the ghost of Kiev and any other instance of, you know, any viral uh, uh, event or sentiment that we're being fed it's all a load of garbage it's sure from from the top down one thing i was really touched by was a number of like local russians from from texas came to our conference and yeah and jenny lynn here in the chat she said shit i'm going to cry i can't imagine what it's like to be russian in the u.s right now and that's why they were there i think is because of the sentiments you know i mean how i mean it's basically we're, we're hearing that russians are evil russians are barbarians 
Um, now, I heard this story from Germany. Can we confirm this? That they are actually marking stores as Russian-owned business. I have heard this. I, can, I mean, I can't confirm it. But in Germany, funny. folks. In Germany. Right? They are marking stores owned by ethnic Russians and Russian speakers. I've seen stores and uh, restaurants and so on. I mean, again, this is just something I've seen online that are, you know, signs saying no Russian citizens may enter. Wow. Yeah. There's a hospital in Germany as well that has allegedly posted a notification saying they won't treat Russian-speaking citizens. Wow. wow. Such humanitarians, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really unbelievable what's happening right now. They banned Anastasia from ABC. Tchaikovsky um, is, uh, is no good. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we were talking about this earlier, um, but, you know, they, they, they're trying to blame us all on Putin's mental health. And I got to tell you, I've been in the, the same room as Putin on two occasions. That guy doesn't like, doesn't blink. You know what I mean? Like that guy is the most straight shooter I've ever seen. If there's anyone who is very, very, very together. It's that guy. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, he doesn't miss a word. He does not stutter. He is very clear. Uh, you know, I mean, the idea that this is all just him having a meltdown or something is ridiculous, right? And another point that needs to be made, and, and this is one thing I don't get, is that we see a lot of like leftists who are getting, jumping on the bandwagon of this. If the Communist Party of, of Gennady Zhuganov and Pavel Grudinian and others had been in power, this probably would have happened eight years ago. That's their critique. That it's, you know, yeah. I, I, I follow Zhuganov uh, on Instagram and what he posts is mostly saying, you know, this operate. I mean, really, he's it, to, to the extent that he's a, any opposition that he has to it is that it's not thorough enough. Yeah. I mean, the communists have been calling for this. They're the ones that introduced the bill in the Russian legislature, the Duma, asking for this to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Venezuelan communists, they support Donetsk and Lugansk. The Nicaraguan communists support them. The Houthi revolutionaries of Iran support them. Uh, you can go down the list, uh, you know. I mean, China hasn't officially recognized the two republics, but they're, you know, they're more or less saying that they support Russia in this operation. North Korea is supporting the peoples of Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, I mean, it's, it's and the, the ban on communist parties, right? That's one thing in Ukraine. They've outlawed all communist parties. In the areas that are now liberated by Russia, the communists are allowed to operate again. So, I mean, it's like if you're a leftist at all, you're a Marxist or a leftist, I mean, you have to understand what side to be on. I mean, it just should be obvious. If there's any doubt, I mean, I would encourage people to look at the Congress of the uh, PC, uh, of the uh, ruling party of Venezuela, their, their Congress, uh, when the Russian ambassador was uh, uh, greeted by the conference, it broke out into applause, chanting. It was even like more than, I, I think it was more than the ambassador would have expected. It was something that, uh, it lasted for like a minute, the, the cheering and the shouting. Um, I, I think that like the progressive forces in the world, with the exception of the few, uh, the, the so-called progressive forces in the Western world who are, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're a minority. I mean, it, it's pretty clear where the world stands. Oh, totally. Um, you know, when, when I was in Nicaragua, uh, the, the day after the re-election of mm. Daniel Ortega, um, at the kind of inauguration celebration, I was there with the international guests, we've been election observers, and they, uh, the Russian ambassador was there. And Daniel Ortega, the socialist president, uh, he's, he thanked the Russian ambassador for the support that Nicaragua has gotten and, and the recognition of their elections. Huge standing ovation for the Russian, Russian ambassador. I mean, I mean, Russia is a friend of socialists and Marxists and revolutionaries in the world. There's no question about it. Um, you know, so uh, also now, interestingly, now Russia, you know, has been friendly to Israel. Right. Um, and there is like Russia, you know, while it's while it's friendly to Syria, it's friendly to Iran. It's also been friendly to Israel. But one thing that I've noticed, uh, which is interesting, is I guess today there's been a development where I guess 
Israel um, at this point is joining the sanctions against Russia. Hmm. Is, is that's the latest development, right? That's what I read. Yeah. Tell, tell I guess after a bit of pressure from the Western allies of Israel, you know, they caved. And this is what a lot of countries have tried to do in the past. They try to pit Russia and, and China and the U.S. against each other for uh, for their gain. And we're hitting a point in the international uh, geopolitical scene where you're going to have to pick a side. And I think that Israel has uh, made made their side very clear. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, I mean, it's, it's really just wild. It's absolutely wild. Um, to, to think about that. Now, um, one thing I did want to do, I wanted to show this clip because Tulsi Gabbard, uh, the former U.S. Congresswoman from Hawaii, who I've had the honor of meeting on one occasion, uh, there was a reception in New York where I actually got to meet her. I asked her some questions and, you know, she has taken some bold stances. Not everything she's ever said do I agree with, but she is on foreign policy. She is outspoken about Syria and other things. This is a video she recently posted and she's getting a huge amount of flack for posting. Let's, let's play the video. Deniable facts. There are 25 to 30 U.S. funded biolabs in Ukraine. According to the U.S. government, these biolabs are conducting research on dangerous pathogens. Ukraine is in an active war zone with widespread bombing, artillery and shelling. And these facilities, even in the best of circumstances, could easily be compromised and release these deadly pathogens. Now, like COVID, these pathogens know no borders. If they are inadvertently or purposely breached or compromised, they will quickly spread all throughout Europe, the United States, and the rest of the world, causing untold suffering and death. So in order to protect the American people, the people of Europe, the people around the world, these labs need to be shut down immediately, and the pathogens that they hold need to be destroyed. Instead of trying to cover this up, the Biden-Harris administration needs to work with Russia, Ukraine, NATO, the UN to immediately implement a ceasefire for all military action in the vicinity of these labs until they're secured and these pathogens are destroyed. Now, in addition wow. to all this, the U.S. funds around 300 biolabs around the world who are engaging in dangerous research, including gain of function, similar to the lab in Wuhan, where COVID-19 may have originated from. Now, after realizing how dangerous and vulnerable these labs are, they should have all been shut down two years ago, but they haven't. Now, this is not a partisan political issue. The administration and Congress need to act now for the health and well-being of every American and every person on this planet. All right. Wow, what's your reaction to that, Tom? Well, there's something remarkable. Uh, when the uh, Olympics were opening up, the, uh, there's a joint statement put out by the uh, Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China outlining many things uh, about you know, the new era that we're entering, the desire for win-win uh, cooperation between states. But there was one bit in there that struck me at the time was some... Uh, uh, put in a diplomatic way an urging of the United States to come clean on its uh, these such labs. And this was before, you know, when, when this was first being talked about, sort of bubbling underneath the surface, it was cast aside as like QAnon conspiracy stuff. And then, you know, the, it, it sort of transcended each level of like acceptability in the discourse. And now we're at the point where Tulsi Gabbard can 
say this, and and even Tucker Carlson say so, one of the the most watched cable news uh, commentator that. Uh, this is something that I feel like everybody knows, and at this time, they're but now they've turned the tables and they're doing damage control, alleging that it's Russia that's going to unleash what they deny that there's anything dangerous going on in these labs. But on the other side of the mouth, they say that they're afraid that Russia is going to release what is in there as a weapon. So, what is you know, I think there's growing pressure internationally for the United States to complete on this. Now, we did have a question in the chat, so we're going to do what we normally do, which is in the second half of the show. Uh, we answer the question. So if you can open a Word document and just type, uh, what did sure. Lenin think of Ukraine? I'll just pull that up, right? You can just, uh, here, we'll um, select all, and if you can type, what did Lenin think of Ukraine? We're going to be writing super chats, because that's often what makes this channel popular. If I do this, like, 20 questions thing, I just answer super chats for us. I do it sometimes. Yeah, 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 and it's, it's a lot of fun. So we're writing down, what did Lenin think of Ukraine? That's the first question we'll get to in the second half of the show. Uh, ben has written it down already, so keep in mind you you are in there. And if there's another question you'd like me to answer in the second half of the show, Ben is running the uh, chat, and he will he will put it on the screen and type it up, and we'll answer it in the second half of the show. But as far back to what we were talking about now, I just had to get that out of the way. But um, as far as the issue with Ukraine, I, look, I mean, okay, so USA invaded Iraq, alleging that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. It could be chemical and biological weapons, it could be a nuclear weapon, et cetera. Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction. And if they did have them, where'd they get them from? Well, in the United States. That's true. The States did, you know, provide chemical weapons to Iraq during the 1980s when they were backing them against the Islamic Republic. Exactly. Um, and so Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And the USA invaded Iraq based on a lie that they might have. But now we find out that not only has this hostile government been installed by the United States right on Russia's border. That, that's a fact, right? The USA has poured weapons into this hostile government. This hostile government has made Nazis an official division of their military, the Azov Battalion. But now the United States has helped these, these fanatically anti-Russian folks right on Russia's border in Ukraine set up biological weapons labs. Is that not an adequate uh, reason to intervene? Yeah, I mean, you think if like, so, so say, say Mexico were aligned with Russia and uh, Russia started building chemical and biological weapons labs in Mexico, right on the border. Do you think the United States would be okay with that? Not for a moment. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, it's like, it's so obvious that Russia is doing what any country would do under these circumstances, but they're Russia and Russia bad, right? And, and it's like, and when you talk about this, these bio labs, I've had people say, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. We have Victoria Nuland, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, talking about these labs. They admit that they've been doing this. The U.S. government admits it's been making weapons, biological weapons labs in Ukraine. And somehow the story is, because Russia has now intervened, they're worried that Russia might do something. They're kind of missing the point here, right? right? right. It's like the story is that, that Russia, Russia knew this all along, right? They knew that, that there were, you know, biological weapons labs going on. They didn't make it public until now, but they knew. So the United States not only armed extremists, not only toppled the Ukrainian government, not only didn't implement the, the Minsk agreement, but now on top of that, we find out that there are a number of these labs where they're making germs. And like Tulsi Gabbard said, in the context of COVID and, and pandemics, like what in the world are we doing? Yeah, people, if, if, even if people want to quibble that, oh, these labs are not, you know, there's nothing uh, uh, dangerous about them. They're not weapons. <laughs> Bioweapons. What could be dangerous about that? Right? I, I mean, any, anything, anything that's going on that's studying, if, if, you're, if you're studying danger, dangerous pathogens and trying to figure out only, you know, uh, uh, 
benevolently trying to study them in order to prevent any sort of, were they to break out, we need a means by which to cure them. But I mean, anything can be weaponized. I mean, just by the fact they are, uh, it's, it's, it's already, it's implicit that they can be weaponized just sure. on the face of it. It's no, uh, the biological weapons. I, one of the first references to them, I believe is a short story by HG Wells. He wrote called the stolen basilisk. Have you ever heard of this? And it's a short story that H.G. Wells, the like Fabian socialist science fiction writer, wrote. Uh, he's the guy who wrote The Time Machine. What are some of his other books? Uh, uh, the, the, the one where the Martians come. And, no. Uh, Is that him? Yeah. The War of the Worlds. Yeah, War of the Worlds. Yeah, H.G. Yeah. Wells. Yeah. And he, um, you know, he wrote this short story, which I read when I was in high school. I got the short stories of H.G. Wells, which is like he wrote a lot of like short stories. And one of them is about an anarchist who, who goes to a lab. Right. And and I guess there's this, this laboratory where there's this doctor who's like, we have this deadly disease here in the lab. And he's like, I don't know why the anarchists use bombs, you know, when they could just use a disease like this uh, or whatever. And then some anarchist breaks into the lab. And so the police are chasing him and he's got this this, you know, this vial with with a deadly disease in it. And they've got him and he's cornered. So then he like drinks it and jumps into the river and like contaminates the water. And that's how the story ends. Uh-huh. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a dark story. Not a happy ending. Yeah, but it's basically H.G. Wells, like, kind of warning about the danger of, of biological weapons. Yeah. And I, the line that stands out in the story is, like, the, the scientist who made the deadly weapon it says something to the effect of, I don't know why anarchists use bombs when they can use germs. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the line. And it's really kind of eerie because it's true, right? Yeah. I mean, germs can kill a lot more people. You know, a bomb Absolutely. goes off, it kills a bunch of people in a building or right. something. But germs, germ warfare, that stuff is really, really deadly. Yeah. I mean, regardless, I mean, even just regardless of whatever the origins of COVID may be, the fact that one virus has reshaped so much of our lives across the whole world, uh, it's probably one of the most potent weapons that exists. Sure. I mean, COVID has devastated the U.S. economy. The suicide rate has gone through the roof. Uh, the economy is, is just in shambles. Uh, you know, depression is on the rise. Drug-related deaths are on the rise. The life expectancy of the United States has gone down couple of years since the pandemic right yeah, yeah. and these lockdowns are continuing a lot of people think that these lockdowns are not really necessary uh you know i don't i'm not a medical expert i don't want to get into specifics about biology and all of that because i just don't know it right and i'll get it wrong and then someone will haha they got me i got it wrong so i'm not going there about the biology i'm not a biologist but but there's debate about these lockdowns and their impact but uh but since then i mean they have you know we've seen a significant loss of life not just as a result of the disease but as a result of the lockdowns mm-hmm. And on top of that, uh, you want to add to that that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, we're being told that these lockdowns are necessary because COVID is so dangerous. Right. So in that context, wouldn't it make sense that, you know, if, if people are afraid that this COVID came from a lab and shot, wouldn't we immediately shut down any such lab that could do something like this? We, have, we should at least uh, revisit, like, whatever our current policies are and do everything that, like, you know, another thing, why is it that... Uh, if the United States is now claiming that they're concerned that the Russians are going to do something nefarious with their labs and that they, they were unable to secure them, there's an invasion that they have been, an invasion that they've been predicting for months mm. and saying it's imminent, it's imminent, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Why didn't they secure these labs? Why are they so concerned? Right. I mean, is, I mean, are we gonna are we gonna see an outbreak of the you know COVID two point right. and it's Russia's fault? Is right. that what we're gonna be told? You know, I mean, it wasn't yeah. enough to blame COVID on China. Now they gotta blame. It'll be COVID two point It'll be Russia's fault. They're going to explicitly say that Russia did it maliciously and deliberately uh, to I don't know no. wreak havoc on Ukraine for some reason. 
They already tried. This was the crazy thing. So last week they tried to say that Russia had attacked a uh, nuclear power plant. Right. And that was bullshit. And that was completely debunked, completely debunked. What had happened was Russia moved in. Uh, they went to the power plant and they basically said, OK, Russian military is protecting it. Ukrainian military is out of the area. They were there. And it was Ukrainians came near the power plant. They shot at Russian troops who were guarding it. And the Russian troops shot back. And as the Ukrainians were retreating, they lit a fire. The fire department came and put it out. That's all that happened. But they had it all over the media that Russia was like shooting bombs or attacking a power plant and that the goal was to like set off a dirty bomb and, and spread radiation. And the Russian foreign minister, uh, you know, I mean, and Sergei Lavrov and, and Maria Zakharova and their representative Nibenzi at the U.N., they called a special U.N. meeting about this. And the Russian representative got up and he said, no, why would we want huge amounts of radiation? Have you seen a map? Ukraine and Russia are pretty exactly. darn close. That would that all, no it, it, it would not benefit Russia in any conceivable way. So it was, it was just outrageous. Yeah. In general, I mean, this is something I've thought about a lot with the propaganda that we see, like the idea that big bad Putin is coming in to stomp all over Ukraine. I think it's, it's projection because, I mean, this is maybe just kind of sort of how I see things maybe, but, you know, the, an Atlanticist way of going to a country and waging war, I think is different then I guess a more uh, land, like if, if you're going across an ocean to deal militarily with a country, you can get away with having complete disregard for the state of the country, how many people you kill, what you do, because you're just going to pick up and leave anyway. Right. But if you're in one piece of land, moving to the neighboring one without the intent, whether you have the intention of staying there or not, you have, there is an incentive to do as little damage as possible, particularly in the case of Russia, not only because there's so much scrutiny on them, but this, it's, they have to deal with the consequences after. They're not, they can't just, Ukraine ain't going anywhere. Right. You know? So it, that whole, and the whole idea that, yeah, they're, they're, they're interested in, wasn't that in Kharkov, the, the nuclear plant? Some a place that I don't know how many kilometers away it is from the present Russian border, but I, what, that they, they want to deal with the lasting consequences and the United States is more concerned with those consequences than the Russians themselves maybe? It makes no sense. Oh, sure. And you can add to it, it. This was like a twofer, because not only could they demonize Russia and play up the fear of Russia, they could also get into people's heads something they've been trying to push for years, which is nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Bad. Mm -hmm. And where does that come from? Big oil companies. Mm -hmm. Right. Because nuclear power threatens to put oil companies out of business. Right. And mm -hmm. that's that's what they're afraid of. Right. Um, and they've been doing this for years. Right. The idea that, they, that, you know, nuclear power is just unsafe. It's too dangerous. You know, nuclear power, bad. That's been a, a long-term agenda of, of the big oil companies who also see Russia as a major competitor, a major exporter of oil and gas. Of course. So, you know, you think about, you know, the big super major oil companies, Chevron, BP, Shell, and ExxonMobil. They're based in Wall Street and in London. They dominate the world and they're afraid of nuclear power. They're afraid of Russia and China rising up in poverty. They're afraid of any competition. They want to dominate the global oil markets and keep the world poor. And their solution to global warming is not let's invest in fusion energy would actually get us beyond fossil fuels with the higher energy. They really want us to know what that is. Yeah. Their solution is uh, let's just, you know, because of climate change, we'll all reduce consumption. Mm -hmm. We'll reduce the amount of oil and gas in the world. And these frackers who are like competing with us, they have to just go out of business. Mm -hmm. And these developing countries that might develop their own oil and gas and start competing with us, they got to be removed. And everyone will just kind of get poorer and they'll stay at the top and that'll be perfect. That's right. their solution to right. climate change. And if you read the documents that are being published by these, you know, environmental uh, research agencies and think tanks that are linked to big oil companies and funded by them. That's their solution. It's just, it's the perfect solution for big oil, right? No fusion energy, 
no fusion energy, no countries around the world getting their independence, but just kind of stop development. Imagine like a game of King of the Mountain, right? And one kid gets to the top and he says, all right, game over, I'm at the top. Yeah. That's their solution. And they're using climate change to push this. Meanwhile, in China, they're doing amazing breakthroughs in fusion energy with their artificial sun. It's like unbelievably amazing what China is doing. No word about it in U.S. media. When, when the artificial suns are reported, it's not framed in the context of breakthroughs in new forms of energy. I mean, the, the, the impression that I get looking at Western media reporting on it to the extent that they do is it's like a weird oddity, like, like, like it's Doc Ock or something like that in China. Like, oh, they're just doing this. What's it for? It's not really explained. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if we could get cold fusion, I mean, the results of that would, would completely be a game changer in the global energy market. I mean, electricity would be so widely available and so widely cheap. And, and that's what motivated, you know, China's missions to the moon, right? They were, when they were acquiring helium three, because helium three is very key in this fusion energy research. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, I mean, we should all be desperately wanting fusion energy. All these people who are like climate catastrophists, yeah. they're not supporting China and they're not supporting fusion energy. Putin, has called for a global united campaign around fusion energy. Mm -hmm. But but all these people that are like, oh my God, we're all gonna die. The climate, you know, it's like the climate cults, right? I mean, it's like they're out there and they got that symbol of the hourglass. Yeah, right? yeah. We're all gonna die and reduce consumption. They want us to eat bugs, live in a pod and never have children and maybe become robots. Yeah, and Greta Thunberg is like, how dare you? How dare you? We want, we want economic growth, you can't tell yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, it's like, if you really believe all of this, right? If you're really buying into this, some, some of this I think is just I mean, I, I think climate change is a fact. I don't deny it, but I there's think something happening. Yeah, there's clearly a problem in the environment, right? But at the same time, like if they really believe this, if they really believe this, why are they not supporting fusion energy? Sure. I mean, I mean, that would do be they know what it is. Yeah, do they even know what it, do they ever consider considering it as an option. No, windmills, windmills. Yeah, yeah, windmills. Right, windmills, windmills, and uh, and solar panels. I mean, they're great. There's nothing wrong with windmills. Sure. Nothing wrong with solar panels. They're not the answer. Right. I'd like to have solar panels on my house. Very nice. Yeah, sure. That, is that going to, we, if they're telling us that there's climate catastrophe that will end life on Earth as we know it, really, these windmills, is that really uh, the solution to uh, an eschatological catastrophe? I, mean, I don't know. Right. I mean, it's like they, they're, they're controlling the narrative so carefully around this, where it's like, it's like they're, I mean, it, it, it's so utterly ridiculous. And, you know, the nuclear power, the anti-nuclear movement has been run by big oil since the beginning. I mean, there's a lot of documentation of that. I'm actually working on a book on the synthetic platform to talk about that. And, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting study. It's an interesting case study because most of the communist groups in the United States defended nuclear power. Um, you know, uh, you know, nuclear power was considered to be you know, if, if you say if you say that, like, we don't trust private companies to run nuclear power, that's one thing. Right. We can get behind that. Same with GMOs. Right. There's yeah. nothing inherently wrong with genetically modified food. Right. But I don't trust Monsanto. Exactly. Right. I don't trust private capitalist corporations to manipulate them. There's nothing inherently wrong with nuclear power. It's just we obviously want public ownership and workers control over it because capitalists are always cutting, cutting corners and trying to make profits. And so we would want there to be public oversight to make sure it's safe. Um, but, but what is crazy, um, is that, you know, in, in the 1980s, you had these anti-nuclear protests, right? And you had, uh, you had the communist party, USA, Gus Hall, Victor Perlow, they came out and they said, well, you know, nuclear power is not bad. Um, you know, just, and, and other groups also. And I mean, the point was basically that if you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, well, you, you can't split an atom. That's just wrong. That's like playing God. Mm -hmm. That's not Marxism. 
No, that's not scientific socialism. You, you've entered a religious, you know, realm. That's a obscurantist, right? Uh, Backward-looking, right? And you know, I mean, that's the same with with GMOs, right? If you're sitting there saying saying, well, you can't you know, change the genes of, of how we grow. Again, you're Which enter- always done. Yeah, way. yeah, you're entering this like spiritual religious thing. Yeah. You have a right to your beliefs, but that's not Marxism. Yeah, well, let's just yeah. be barefoot, uh, digging in the mud right. uh, with our bare hands. Maybe we anywhere. shouldn't have electricity. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, and if God had meant for man to fly, he'd go to give him wings. Let's get rid of airplanes. You know, I mean, in my, my hometown, I can't remember, there were a couple of pastors who wouldn't fly on planes. They were like conservative Mennonites and, they, you know, they, they just planes was just too much. You know, they just wouldn't fly on airplanes. It was a little bit weird. But, you know, you know, but but, you know, but but uh, but when it comes to when it comes to that, like the idea that nuclear power was inherently bad, that was not Marxism. And Sam Marcy of the Workers' World Party, he always made that point. He would say, you know, after Fukushima, it was pointed out that, you know, I think there were some people in the Workers' World Party who said, well, Sam Marcy always insisted we never say we're against nuclear power, right? That, that the idea is we don't trust the private corporations. But in the 80s, we started seeing like the Marxist left because there was this huge anti-nuclear mobilization going on in the country, led by the Democrats, right? And it was against nuclear weapons and nuclear power. And they were making towns into nuclear-free zones. And, and it was this whole thing. We saw the Marxist groups gradually, one step at a time, just kind of, okay, you know, nuclear power being unsafe, nuclear power is bad. They just went along. Yeah. And the results is, you know, a prevailing, you know, domination of left circles by non-scientific voices. And, and, that, and that, you know, basically, I mean, nuclear power enables countries to break out of, of dependence on big oil companies. Mm-hmm. If you're an oil importing country, you know, this, there's a reason the Soviet Union had so much nuclear power. It's because, you know, they, 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 they wanted to sell their oil on international markets. They didn't sure. want to use their oil to make electricity. And that the nuclear power gives independence. Iran's nuclear exactly. energy program has yeah. been so viciously attacked, but it's, it's peaceful. But, you know, it's a peaceful nuclear energy program. Wild fact, in the 1980s, I believe, what was it? It was 81, 82. Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi boss socialist government was making nuclear power plants, and they contracted a French nuclear power company to make nuclear power plants in Iraq, and Israel bombed their facility. You know about this? Yeah, and they killed them, yes. And they didn't just kill, they killed a number of Iraqis, they even killed a French citizen in response to this, right? Um, And and it it was completely outrageous. And that the, the campaign against nuclear power, it comes from the big oil companies. That's exactly who it comes from, and it's about trying to keep themselves at the top of the world. Yeah. And it, it, it and the left has kind of just, and this is part of the synthetic left. If you look at a lot of the left money, the foundation, it comes from the Rockefellers, it comes from Exxon Mobil, the Ford Foundation, that's Henry Ford, Ford Motor Company, but it's basically dominated by big oil forces. It's the estate, sure. the trust of Henry sure. Ford and the people that run it. And if you look at, it's like the CIA, the, you know, the, 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 the synthetic left is basically big oil, right? It's the CIA and big oil. Mm-hmm. That's who is behind George Soros, uh, the Rockefellers, uh, you know, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, Chase Bank is the Rockefellers Bank, and then J.P. Morgan, the Morgan family are in there. It's big oil that is that is really running the left right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it really makes you wonder, like, what what does in this current climate, when we talk about left and right, like, what are we really talking about? If if yeah. if left if left means to be aligned and controlled by the richest, most powerful people strangling the planet, then what do these words even what do they even mean anymore? Right, right. I mean, and, and I talk a lot about divisions in the ruling class. And, you know, there, there have been fights in the ruling class. I mean, there was an attempt to remove Roosevelt from office. The National Association of Manufacturers, Henry Morgan and Henry Ford, they wanted Roosevelt out. But the Rockefellers were for Roosevelt. 
And so, you know, there was a fight in the ruling class and, and, you know, there's a longstanding division between like big capitalists and, and the lower level capitalists. You look at like the 1960s, the John Birch Society. I think it was the guy from like Welch's, was it Welch's, oh, you know, can, candy company or something. He was the big John Birch Society funder. The, the juice company? I think so. If I'm not mistaken, it was Robert okay. Welch and he like owned a candy company or something. He was the big funder of the John okay. Birch Society. And it was like, these were lower level capitalists. Sure. And they were writing these screeds, these manifestos saying like the Rockefellers are communists, President Eisenhower is a communist. What they're really saying is they were seeing big capital. They're saying big capital is communist because they're regulating the economy in a way that we're not able to be fair, you know, fair competition. Yeah, against the, against the monopolies. Yeah, they're shut out. Right. And that's what, you know, when you listen to like Alex Jones and a lot of these right wing libertarian types, when they're calling the big capitalists communists, what they mean is that they're using the government to rig and, and secure their monopoly. And they don't have access. Yeah. And so they want more of a libertarian model because they want it to be more of a fair competition. And that's kind of the divide. There's a really good book by Carl Oglesby, who was the leader of Students for a Democratic Society in the 60s. It's called uh, The Yankee and Cowboy War. And it talks about how, you know, there, he talks about the Yankees being the New England establishment, uh, the Anglo-American establishment, the Eastern establishment, Rockefeller's big oil, and and the cowboys being, you know, weapons manufacturers and, you know, like tycoons and these lower level capitalists that are more, more out of Texas, places like that. And that there's been this deep-seated divide among the capitalist class. You know, the military industrial complex, the lower level capitalists, they tend to be more right wing, but, but at the same time, the, the Eastern establishment is much more like social engineering oriented. Sure. It's about, you know, they're liberal in the sense that they want to control people. Yeah. I mean, when, when people think of like the, when people say that, you know, there's no difference between the Republicans and Democrats, I'm not making like a qualitative judgment as to who is better or worse, but to deny that there are different class forces uh, between one versus the other, um, you know, when Republicans are talking about the Green New Deal and that's communism, whatever, they're trying to take away your burgers. That's not all theater. Obviously, they're trying to appeal to people, in maybe superficial ways, but this isn't pure theater. This is like dif different uh, uh, sections of the ruling class. Clearly, there, there, there is a line between them at this point. And it seems more pronounced since... I mean, you could argue that the seeds of it, that like the seed of the plant that we have now, or maybe during the Obama era when, you know, you have the Tea Party and these different, like you're not, you're, you're not traditional Republicans gaining prominence and principally under Trump, uh, there, there, there seems to be very clearly at this point, at least a difference. Sure. Well, Tom, it's been a real pleasure to have you on here. Thanks Thank for sharing your unique experience in Russia, Thank seeing you. the victims of this war that U.S. media ignores. It's really been a pleasure to have you on here. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. All well, right. best wishes. So if anybody else has a question, mind you, just send it on in. Ben is going to answer it. People love that 20 questions. I answer any question on Marxism or theory. Occasionally, somebody will ask me a question I just can't answer. They'll be like, hey, Caleb, what's your opinion of blah, 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 blah. And I just be like, I don't know what it is. So I just can't answer the question. But if, if you ask me about something I know, I will do my best to give you an answer. That's the way it works here. And people love that. People love my answering their questions. And I know some people, they even, they send me a question and they clip my answer. Caleb answered my question. I found a lot of videos on YouTube that are like that. So if you got a question on Marxism or geopolitics or whatever, just send us a super chat. We already got one about Ukraine. Uh, and we're ready to roll. Now, um, I believe we have another guest who's coming on, I think. Uh, one minute, that guest will be ready. But, uh, but Ben, I, I did want to talk about, you know, um, you know, my book on Kamala Harris, mm. right? I talked about, you know, how, in a way, she's almost like psychologically programmed. You know, this is the book that we put out on Kamala Harris. And, you know, I talked about kind of the manipulation of trauma. 
right? And how like it's very clear that Kamala Harris and her father are not on good terms. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, do you know about this? Yeah, her father was a Marxist professor, and if I'm not mistaken, he's actually denounced his daughter. Yes, yes. Her Kamala Harris's father uh, is a a Jamaican born economics professor uh, at uh, the university uh, at Stanford University in California. And uh, he went as far as denouncing Kamala Harris's presidential campaign because Kamala Harris went on The Breakfast Club, which is this popular like morning radio show. And she was being interviewed and they asked her if she'd ever smoked. Weed. And her reply was, half my family's from Jamaica. What do you think? And uh, her, her father, Donald, uh, did not appreciate that. Of course. Did not appreciate that. Um, and he really, I guess he was offended by the, uh, the stereotype of a Jamaican as a pot. I, I believe he said that as a pot smoking joy seeker. He really didn't like that stereotype. But then, and this is the crazy thing, you have to really dig to find it. But in this book, I quote it. It gets even more crazy because Donald Harris wrote this beautiful essay called Reflections of a Jamaican Father, which is very hard to find. And I dug it up. And in that essay, he talks about how he, he basically lost the ability to be his daughter's father in a custody battle. And in the custody battle, they played up the idea that he was from the islands, et cetera, and used these kind of stereotypes against him. So, so it was, she was not just, when she offended him, it wasn't just like she was dissing her Jamaican heritage. She was like, that. those stereotypes have been used to take custody away from her father, right? And you'll notice she rarely mentions her father. And when she does, it's just a passing mention. My father was an economics professor. Moving on, moving on, right? But her mother, Kamala Harris's mother, is like a sainted icon. She can do no wrong. Yeah, you know, I mean, her mother, Shmila Gopalan or Goplin is just, I mean, you know, there's no, I mean, she's like a saint. Um, and you have to wonder what's going on there. You know, what's going on there? And that in so many ways, Kamala Harris, she sees herself as a victim, right? The world has been totally unfair to her. Um, and that is what motivated her to just do vicious things as a prosecutor. When you think of yourself as a victim, you can just do anything, right? It gives you permission to harm other people because you're the victim. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's how it works. And, um, and she basically, uh, she saw herself as, as a victim. And, you know, I mean, with the T-shirt, that little girl was me. It's all about little Kamala was victimized. And she was. I mean, she experienced racism in her school. She was one of the first classes to desegregate her school in California. And something happened with her father. I think there's more to it than just what we know about. But regardless, Kamala Harris sees herself as a victim. And that feeling of victimhood has given her permission to just, you know, destroy the lives of other people. When she was a prosecutor in California, she jailed people for smoking weed. She destroyed the lives of thousands of people. She wanted to keep an innocent man on death row. I mean, that's called attempted murder in my book. You're trying to keep an innocent man on death row. That's called attempted murder. And there was a man who was going to be executed. And Kamala, Kamala was just so excited to fry a bastard. You know, that, that she tried to block DNA evidence being admitted. Now, you want to talk about, about unbelievable behavior. I mean, if someone's about to get the death penalty, wouldn't you want to make sure they were guilty of the crime? Wouldn't you want to make sure that DNA evidence was, was available? She tried to block DNA evidence. She was overruled by the California government. They got the DNA evidence, and uh, the individual is still in jail. Now, he is still in jail, but he is not on death row anymore. And I mean, I, when you look at that story, and I guess Kamala Harris was asked about this by the New York Times, and she said she feels bad about it. She tried to kill somebody, an innocent man, and she feels bad about it. She feels bad about it. So, I mean, this is who we're dealing with. This is a person who sees themselves as a victim. It's kind of what you can call like a, a sadistic narcissist, 
right? In her mind, she's a victim. The world was unfair to little Kamala. She's probably relived whatever her traumatic experiences are over and over and over again. So basically other people are just kind of this blur in her, like her desire to get retribution or, or justification for whatever happened to her. And she is out there. And I mean, look, she understands. We saw her, her understanding of the Ukraine crisis. Russia is like a big country and Ukraine is like a small country. So like Russia is attacking Ukraine and that's like bad, man. And that's her understanding. This is, this is a person who's one Joe Biden heart attack away from the president of the United States. And having their hands on the nuclear football. I mean, yeah. And she's not well. I mean, she's really not well. Um, her staff has been resigning. You know, I told people about this. You know, I mean, I, I, I hate being right about so many things. But I, I wrote this book before she was elected. I said, this woman's unstable. She's dangerous. And I said this. Um, a lot of people attacked me. They said, oh, that's so sexist, Caleb, and it's racist, and oh, you know, you're, you're saying she's got daddy issues or whatever. Well, now it's come out. I mean, it is, it is a fact. Her staff are resigning in droves. All the people who've worked with her, including Simone Sanders and others, have basically admitted that, that she subjects her class, her, her, her staff, to vicious criticism. You know, if you're on her staff, she just like tears people apart in front of other people. She refuses to get prepped for interviews because she's the great Kamala. Why would she need any prep? She's a sadistic narcissist. That's what I told you, right? I, I, I knew her better than she knew herself. Uh, so there you go. So now our next guest is going to be the great Lily Goldplang, uh, who's going to come on and talk about, uh, talk about various things. Lily, it actually slipped my mind what you're going to talk about. Come, come sit down. Come sit down, Lily. Come sit down. We've got, we got plenty to talk about. So what is it that you wanted to, to talk about? You were going to make a comment about something, right? Um, I didn't have anything specific. I mean, I guess kind of vaguely the reaction we've been getting online and kind of okay. <clears throat> how it irritates me. I mean, you've been in this longer than me, so maybe you've found a way to sort it out in your mind. But how do people just so straight-facedly, like, lie? Okay, well, a clear conscience. first of all, you're talking about the reaction to the, to the conference that we just had. Conference, yeah. Okay, summarize for me, because I haven't even seen all this. I just block people, mind you. If someone like, starts calling me a Nazi or calling me racist or whatever, I just, I hit that block button. I am addicted to that block button. It's like, block, and then they go away, right? And, and then they're not my problem, but then they're your problem. You have to deal with them. Yeah. So, so, so summarize uh, what, you know, and I, I have seen an overwhelmingly positive reaction to our conference. I mean, the yeah. Russians who were there were, were moved almost to tears. Uh, the, 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 just the, all that's available at this point is just a single photograph. And that photograph has gone viral uh, in the Donetsk People's Republic and all of that. So I'm seeing the positive reaction. I'm seeing like there was some, you know, we talked about it yesterday. The person with the purple makeup was like, they're nationalists. You know, other than that. So what is what are they saying in this negative reaction? Well, the negative reaction, you're right. It is a minor word. But it's like, you know, I mean, it's the typical stuff. We're fascists. We're Nazbols. We're not national socialists. We're... Et cetera, et cetera. But I just, I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying to grapple with how do people lie like that's like with a clear conscience. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the great Peter Coffin who spoke at our conference one time, he said, no one ever admits they're wrong on the internet. So I think that's part of it, right? Is that, you know, people have just decided that this must be the case. Um, also, I think the definition of fascism is at this point so, you know, ridiculous. I mean, it's like, what does fascism mean at mm -hmm. this point? I mean, how can you be fascist for supporting a denazification operation? Well, by fighting the fascists, you're the real fascists. I guess. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, and, and, and I mean, it shows you how selective this is because, I mean, here in Ukraine, we have actual Nazi admirers who are tearing down World War II memorials. In Germany, the, the photos of the Azov Battalion and the Ukrainian fighters, they have to, like, blur them because they're wearing, like, on their arm, they're wearing, like, the lightning bolt, which is a Nazi symbol. It's actually illegal in Germany. 
Uh, and so these actual Nazis who admire a Nazi collaborator, participant in the Holocaust, Stepan Bandera, these actual Nazis are being supported by the United States. They're fine with that. But we are opposing that and we're standing with Russia against that. And they've decided that, well, Russia is like killing people. So that's like Hitler. So Russia is fascist. And we are supporting Russia. No bones about it. We are definitely supporting Russia. Guilty as charged. Russia is absolutely right to protect the people of Donetsk and Lugansk, you know, to break apart that, that Ukrainian military. And so, yes, you know. The people supporting the Nazis in Ukraine are the exact same people who have been saying everyone's a Nazi the best, like, what? Yeah. Like, 10 years? Yeah. And now, you know, we, do, we I'm kind of pissed at them because they fucking, they, like, desensitize people to the word Nazi. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, they're now when I say, oh, there's literal Nazis in Ukraine, they're like, oh, come on. But it's like, we, we didn't throw that word around lightly. And now we're actually using it because it applies and people are like, you know. Yeah. Trump supporters are Nazis. Leftists who use, uh, you know, the aesthetics of Marxism in the 20th century are Nazis. But people who tear down World War II memorials, people who admire Nazis and, and have torchlit parades for Nazis, uh, people who people who uh, form Nazi fighting divisions and use Nazi symbols, you know, that's just, that's, that's what I actually, I have a friend back in Boston who there was a, one of these Ukraine protests and there was the flag of the right sector, you know, the black and red, mm -hmm. the anarchists might think it's theirs, but no. Um, and he, a guy was waving the right sector flag and my friend goes up to him, he says, what flag is this? And the guy in an accent, he goes, uh, it's the uh, flag of the army that defended Ukraine in World War II. Uh -huh. It's like, what? Defended Ukraine from anti-fascists, <laughs> right? From the Soviet Union, from the people that were aligned with the United States. Yeah. But what else are people saying? What else is out there? I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of the typical things they trot out. Um, trot out. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I heard somebody was telling me that, that somebody was claiming that we have a we had a book by Alexander Dugan on the literature table. Now, I wouldn't be opposed. I mean, he's an important voice, but I mean, we're he's not our view. We're not Duganists, right? But we didn't. I mean, we did not yeah. have it. I mean, and, uh, you know, we had, there was the literature table that was the official CPI literature table. We had, we had our books, um, you know, that we put out, right? We had some Marxist classics. Uh, we had Peter Coffin's two books that he put out, right? Um, and then the, the LaRouche organization, they were there as well. They were like our friends, our guests. They had their own book table, but they don't like Dugan. They're not Dugan supporters. They're right. quite critical and they, they wouldn't have Dugan stuff. So there was no Dugan book on our literature table. Um, yeah. Oopsie daisy. Oopsie. That one's just not true. Um, also, it is, you know, interesting fact, it is impossible to get Dugan's books in the United States because of the sanctions, right? Amazon has taken them all down. So if an actual Dugan book did exist on our literature table, that would be like an act of God. You know what I'm saying? Like that would be like a miracle that somebody subverted the U.S. sanctions, got a book, an actual, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I have a couple Dugan books, but I bought them like back in 2013. You know, yeah, or I bought them in Russia, you know, when I was in Russia, but you cannot, Dugan's books are not available in the United States. He's on the sanctions list. Amazon will not carry them. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've heard some people were able to get them on like eBay or something, used copies or something. But so if there were Dugan books there, that would be like amazing. That would be a huge feat, a huge accomplishment on our part. But there were not Dugan books. There were not. There were not. There were not. But I wouldn't be opposed to that kind of thing, right? And if people actually read Dugan, they would know that Dugan's not a Nazi, right? It's like this logic that like, it's like, so I'm a Nazi because I met with Dugan. Dugan's not a Nazi. But someone said he is. But someone said he is. If you actually read his book, The Fourth Political Theory, which is the, the Dugan book that I read that I probably got the most out of, it's the fourth political theory because he's opposed to both communism and fascism. Yeah, he sees uh, the liberal democracy and capitalism as the first political theory. Communism is the second political theory. Fascism is the third 
political theory, third position. And he's developing what he calls the fourth political theory, which is a combination of anti-capitalism and traditionalism and all kinds of stuff, which I don't agree with. I'm a believer in historical progress. One of the main points that Dugan makes in a lot of his books is that there is no historical progress, that the past, the present, the future are equal, right? That historical progress is a myth of the West that's been invented in order to justify imperialism, et cetera. I don't agree with that. Historical progress is like, look at this book. This is my book, Getting Rich Without Capitalism. Do you see what, what's on the cover here? This is one of the fastest trains in the world in China right now, high-speed railway in China. I, Marxism and historical progress is like essential to my worldview. And I think the problem with imperialism is that it's holding back historical progress. So, so yeah, but, but I wouldn't be opposed to people reading one of the most important political theorists in Russia right now. You know? And Venezuelans told me I should read Dugan. When I was in Venezuela, Venezuelans told me to read Dugan. And when I was in Iran, the Iranians told me to read Dugan. So he's an important thinker. He's not a fascist. And we also didn't have his book on our table. So that one's just, just we'll just throw that out. It's like, can they be more wrong about anything? Well, to preserve freedom, they have to restrict freedom. Right. You know, it's like, but the book wasn't there. The guy that they alleged the book by is not a fascist. I mean, it's like, it's like, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, and then the space aliens landed at our conference. And I mean, it's like, it's like, they're just, they're just so, it's like, like they, they couldn't even come up with a good lie. Like what they should make it up. They should make it up. We had like Hitler's writings on the table, right? Yeah. Then they would have gotten us. And then we would have to be like, no, there wasn't produce a picture or whatever. Yeah. But in this case, like if we, even if we did, that wouldn't, you well, know, it's up. just, think about this. yeah. We have Karl Marx's the civil war in France. Okay. Take out that war civil war in France who invaded France, the Nazis. Uh-huh. There you go. They got us. Makes they sense. got us. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted to say that. The civil war in France. Well, it's all online. Marx has been in it. Yeah, archive, but, so. you know, there's something about having the. Yeah. yeah, well, civil war in France. That's the book that Bosch quotes to lie. In my book, Red Tube Serves Imperialism. I quote that book a lot because he just lies. In that book, that's the famous quote from Karl Marx, the bourgeoisie, or what is it? The, the proletariat cannot simply cease hold of the ready state, ready made state machinery. It's about the Paris Commune of 1871, this workers' uprising. He says the, the proletariat cannot simply seize control of the ready-made state machinery. So Bosch quotes that and is like, Marx wasn't a statist. Marx didn't want a government. It's like, no. What about the word ready-made? Yeah. That's key. That's key. And then he spends, and I quote in the Bread 2 book, like he spends paragraph after, I mean, the quote, the quotation, the block quote from Marx goes on for like three pages of Marx describing the new state institutions that the communards built, the workers' assemblies, the people's militias, the courts, everything. He describes it in detail. So the idea that that quote is Marx saying he doesn't want a state is the most outrageous lie. Anyone who looks at the context, he's saying we can't build it with a capitalist state, right? We can't, we can't just take control of the FBI and the CIA and the Pentagon and use them to create a socialist paradise in America. No, we'd have to create a new new community police force and a new community, a, a new type of military and a new type of intelligence agency, right? right? That's what he's saying. He's not saying, no, I never want there to be any kind of state. He's saying that, no, we have to create a new state. And yes, the ultimate goal is a stateless, classless world based on vast material abundance. I, I think with the whole military operation starting in Ukraine, someone, speaking of Bosch, someone, I think his operator flipped the switch and now he's got on full uh, mask off. You know, now he's saying, talking about the NATO anarchist Galactic Federation or something. And he says, anarcho-Ukrainian nationalism is rising. I think, you know, Vosh should get back to, he should go back to video games. You know, he should stick to the video games. You know, well, he still does. He says before he gives his political analysis, like in a 10 minute video, he's like, I just got up, it's 3 p.m. I haven't showered. I really want to play video games, but I had to talk about this. I still can't get over when he discovered on air who George Galloway was. Yeah. That was, that was classic. George Galloway, 
probably the most famous socialist in, in Britain, who was a member of parliament, who was kicked out of the Labour Party for opposing the Iraq war, who is just like outspoken for Palestine, just a hero of the progressive people. And he's like watching a clip of me to learn why I'm bad. He's like, wait, who's that? George Gall, and he pulls up Wikipedia. He's learning from Wikipedia who George Galloway is. Why does anyone listen to this? Yeah, why does anyone listen to this fool about what, what socialism is? I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, I mean, I, I expect him like, you know, that, it's almost like on the level of like learning who Marx is from Wikipedia. So it's like, if you know anything about the socialist movement in Britain, you're going to know who George Galloway is. Love him or hate him. So, I, I mean, I've known who George Galloway is for a long time. You gotta respect the, the, the uh, oh, right, right. His party was right. Vosh would not get that joke, but yes, after George Galloway was kicked out of the Labour Party, he started the Respect Party, which stood for like what is it, responsibility, equality, socialism. I don't remember the rest, but it's the Respect Party, it's called, right? Prosperity, yeah, something like that. Yeah, but you know, I mean, and and the other thing is that, um, you know, I first saw George Galloway speak in Cleveland, I think it was 2010, maybe, maybe earlier. And it was this event, this huge Arab-American event to support Palestine that, right. that, that took place in Cleveland. And George Galloway came in and he had just gone to Gaza. He had broken the blockade and gone to Gaza. And it was like he got standing ovation after standing ovation after standing ovation. And I was in the audience. And at one point, I mean, and he was talking about, um, you know, he was, he was being optimistic about Obama. He right. said, you just had a very important election in the United States. You elected Barack Obama. The last president you had had the excuse of being an idiot. But, you know, Barack Obama is a smart man. He has no excuse. To, you know, it was good. It was a good talk. And then he said he was going back to Gaza and he was bringing with him his friend, the Venezuelan president. And then the whole room, like, you know, thousands of people, Arab Americans started chanting Chavez, Chavez, Chavez. It was it was really amazing. Really, really amazing. That was just after. Uh, the Lebanese uh, resistance forces had defeated Israel. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I maintain that the Obama presidency, it was it was an attempt to kind of derail. There was like this huge upsurge of anti-Israel, anti-imperialism in the Middle East, right? You know, the Lebanese resistance were kind of the heroes of, of, of all enemies of Zionism. And at that point, you know, Obama came in, and his middle name is Hussein, and it was an attempt to kind of derail. It. I compare Obama, I said, Obama, Barack Obama is a, uh, you know, like a 21st century Napoleon. He's, because Napoleon, when he tried to conquer Syria and Egypt, put up posters everywhere claiming to be a Muslim. But oh, he I wasn't. Like the Thermidor, I'm like, what was the revolution? No, 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 no. no, no. Okay. Napoleon pretended to be a Muslim to conquer the Arab peoples. He put up posters. And that's what Barack Obama was doing. Barack Obama was basically faking out the Arab world. Look, here's a guy who can understand you. He went to a Muslim school in Indonesia. Middle name's Hussein. He's your friend. Look, Netanyahu hates him, even though he's like giving Netanyahu everything he wants. And but they have this like Twitter war going on. It was a, it was a psyop. That's what I'm convinced that the Obama presidency was. You know, Barack yeah. Obama was a psyop. Um, and I'm going to talk about that. I'm I'm now that this conference is over. I'm slowing down a little bit. I'm going to start get back to writing, I'm working. I, I'm going to have a new book. A new book. I can't say too much about oh, it, but yeah, there's okay. a new book that's going to be coming out. I'm going to get back to writing, and it's been a while since I've been writing. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to get back to writing, and and I, I did a lot of research on Barack Obama, and it's unbelievable. So you know, I mean, here's just a little tidbit of information about Barack Obama. So Barack Obama's father, general in the Indonesian military, a stepfather, right? His actual father is from Kenya, but he grew up a lot of his childhood is in Indonesia. At the time he was running for president, all we heard about was, oh, he went to a Muslim school. Oh, my God, he went to a Muslim school. Like, like it's Indonesia. I mean, he's going to go to a Muslim school. It's a Muslim country, okay? Like, that's not the point. But his father, his father, Lolo Satoro, 
was a leader of the Indonesian military. What happened in Indonesia in 1965? Sukarno was overthrown and Suharto was instated. Yeah, there was a military coup where the US government aligned and the CIA toppled, they used the military to topple the Indonesian government. And they, they, they started out, you know, the CIA supplied the names of all the members of the Indonesian Communist Party and they started slaughtering them. And then there was just so much ethnic hatred in Indonesia for the, for the ethnic Chinese who were supporters of the Communist Party, that it went from being just a slaughter of communists to a genocide of the ethnically Chinese people. 1965, 500,000 people are slaughtered. Like the, the, the rivers, like the, the, the canalways near the capital in Indonesia were clogged with dead bodies. I mean, it was just this horrendous massacre. So Barack Obama's father, his, elite, his stepfather, was a leader of this military that was carrying out a, 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 you know, slaughtering communists, carrying out a coup, and, and then you know, and going on to commit genocide against ethnically Chinese people. That should have been the story, not, oh, my God, he went to a Muslim school. No, it wasn't. You know, that, that was not the story. The story was that, that Barack Obama's father was tied to that. And on top of that, what is Obama's mother, Ann Dunham, right? Yeah, that was Barack Obama's mother, right? She's this academic. She lived in Hawaii or whatever. Why, why does some academic in Hawaii marry like a general in the Indonesian military? So the story is, is glowing very much. Yeah, I mean, is, is that what I mean, you, people in Hawaii do that all the time, right? They just marry like high ranking military officials in other countries, right? Oh, well, she, maybe she wanted a little adventure, a little. I mean, I mean, something's going on there. And she was working for the Ford Foundation. That's who her employer was in Indonesia, the Ford Foundation. So she's. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you, you're starting, the more you look into this, the more you realize, hmm, you know. And then on top of that, you know, Barack Obama, after he graduates, you know, he's at Harvard, he's at Columbia. After he graduates, his first employer is something called the International Business Corporation. IBC, which, by the way, International Business Corporation. Can you think of a, a more of a uh, bland name? It's like you're trying to invent something that's just completely bland. Well, the International Business Corporation is this foundation that just goes around the world, goes to developing countries, Africa, Asia, you know, the Pacific Islands, other places, putting on workshops about how important the free market is and, and encouraging, encouraging free trade and the free market in developing countries. That was his first job is he just went around and doing these workshops about the importance of free market capitalism. Mm, now, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's and that's his first corporate. I mean, it's, it's you can get into that and, you know, people want to get conspiratorial and all that. But it's like, I mean, the, you look at Barack Obama. Barack Obama was not Jesse Jackson. All right. Jesse Jackson, he made a lot of compromises and stuff. But he was a actual civil rights. Barack Obama from day one glow, glowed in the dark, like you might say. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, Barack Obama glowed in the dark unbelievably. And uh, his presidency was one of the most crazy psyops. Could you imagine? What would have happened if the Arab Spring happened with George W. Bush as president or, John or Trump as president? You know, uh, if, if, if Barack Hussein Obama had not been president of the United States in 2011, when the Middle East lit up like a Christmas tree, uh, things would have very, very much been different. Uh, I think Iran and the, the resistance forces in the Middle East would have been the main beneficiaries of the upsurge. But instead, due to the fact that Barack Obama was there and due to the fact that Al Jazeera, the, the TV network from Qatar, that is like the voice of the Muslim Brotherhood, basically. But also like the kind of- Yeah, yeah, that they, were, that they were kind of key in pushing the Arab Spring. 
due to due to that being being the situation, due to that reality, um, you know, you had a situation where the Arab Spring ultimately benefited the United States, right? And and that that was absolutely necessary, and that that's what was going on. So you know, um, and the other thing is, you know, I was a member of the Workers World Party at the time. And the Workers' World Party at that point had a relationship with John Conyers, uh, you know, who was a Democrat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, we, we never voted for Democrats, but he came to one of our anti-war meetings. You know, he supported, he would sometimes speak at anti-war rallies and stuff. I remember John Conyers was urging everyone, he came to an anti-war, like, planning meeting for Macaulay, the Michigan Emergency Committee Against War Injustice, which is like a Workers' World anti-war protest, basically. And he showed up at the meeting. We're like, man, this is a member of Congress. He just came to our meeting. It was like a surprise visit. And he gave, you know, he basically just urged us all to vote for Obama. And this is what he said. He said, you know, it's not just here in America that, uh, that you know, people are unhappy because of the economic crisis. It's also in the Middle East. It's also in the Middle East. And in a lot of these Middle Eastern countries, America is backing the dictators. So eventually when people are hungry, what do they do? They go out and riot. So we need there to be a man in the White House who can relate to those Middle Eastern people when they rise up. So basically, John Conyers spilled the beans to us in 2008 and, and, and in the Workers' World Party office at the Macaulay meeting. I'm sitting there, and I look back on that, and I'm like, damn, you know what I mean? Like, John Conyers, member of Congress, he must have gotten his briefing, his orientation. You know, I was basically told, you know, what, what the purpose of the Obama presidency was. And I think, you know, part of the reason, I remember there was all this anger, you know, uh, there was, you know, they called it like the Pumas, right? Party unity, my ass, all these people who didn't want, wanted Hillary Clinton, not Obama. I think the anger was really about the fact that, you know, Hillary Clinton had been picked, but then the crisis in the Middle East, some people said, no, we have to have Obama. We have to have Obama. And then what's even crazier is for the first four years of Obama's presidency, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, um, Obama wasn't running the foreign policy of the United States. Hillary Clinton was, even though she wasn't president. Basically, she was the one. She had her team picked out. She was running the foreign policy. In 2009, when the government of Honduras was overthrown, they asked Barack Obama about the coup in Honduras in 2009. And he said, well, that's not legal. He didn't know the United States had done it, that Hillary Clinton had met with the coup plotters ahead of time. Well, that's legal. You know, I mean, and we got mad. Oh, God, Obama's, you know, supporting dictator, you know, you know, and all the right wing got all hoity-toity. But it was simply an, an honest mistake. Obama had not been briefed about what the Hillary Clinton State Department was doing in Honduras. Like, do you remember from the 2008 primary when it was pretty clear Hillary had no chance and Obama was going to leave her? And someone's like, uh, someone's like, why are you still saying it? And she's like, well, look what happened to Bobby Kennedy after he won California. Hmm. And she was like, just he was assassinated after he won the California primary, which is like, wow. what the f- what? Yeah, like she he, well, he could get assassinated. Wow, you didn't know about the internet. I have not heard about that. That's eerie. It's, I mean, that's like on the level of like Secret Service visits your house type of comment. Yeah, you know? but, but she said it on like wow. national television. Wow, that is wild. I did I did not remember that. I do remember. Uh, the, the funny thing was, I mean, it was kind of sad. I, funny is not the right word, but Bill Clinton uh, was trying to like downplay Barack Obama's electoral victories. And he said, well, it was like in South Carolina or something that, that Obama had won. And he said, well, Jesse Jackson won there too. And people are like, oh, you're, you know. Wow. Yeah, they, they took it as, as kind of a racial comment. Um, you know, but I mean, the thing was the Jesse Jackson campaign in the 1980s, right? That was different. All right. Now, I mean, in a lot of ways, yes, it was the Democratic Party and, and it was, you know, but it was like Jackson was running on a platform of like sympathy with Palestinians, about, you know, get rid of nuclear weapons, you know, peace with the USSR. You know, I mean, he was running. It was a real deal. Yeah. I mean, he was he sold out in a lot of ways. Since then, he's really kind of moved to the right. But it, 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 
his 84 campaign, you know, was kind of a left wing campaign, you know, um, in a lot of ways. It really was. And, and that's, you know, Barack Obama. I mean, he, he was like the only prominent African-American leader who had like no ties to the civil rights movement, no ties to grassroots movements. And they make a big deal out of him being a community organizer, um, a community organizer. But if you look at him, he was a Ford Foundation guy. Yeah, he was Acorn, and in a lot of ways, what he was doing was he was kind of like spying on leaders of the black community in Chicago. Like, I mean, it's like you look at his history in Chicago, he was not a community organizer. And his first campaign for Congress was to the right. He ran against Bobby Rush. Bobby Rush was a former Black Panther, and he didn't run against him to the left, he ran against him to the right. It was Bobby Rush was this former leader of the Black Panthers that worked with Fred Hampton, but it really kind of mellowed out and become kind of... But, but Bobby Rush was running, and they ran Obama, and that's when he first won the election. They ran him to the right against Bobby Rush. So, you know, it was very clear that Obama was not a progressive. And, and it's really funny because there's this whole narrative that you get about Barack Obama, right, when, where it's like Barack Obama, you know, is a communist, with campaigns paid for by Moscow Gold and Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers. And it, it's, it's all so ridiculously stupid. You know what I mean? Anyone who knows anything about local politics in Chicago knows that, that guy has been with the machine from the beginning. He's not even from Chicago. They sent him there, basically. Um, and it's a whole wild story. But um, but anyway, that's kind of a tangent. What else is on your mind today, Willie? You know, I mean, you were talking about it with Tom, I saw, but the, the, the bioweapons, it's, so they're not bioweapons. They're biological research facilities. But if Russia gets them, then they're bioweapons. Mm. How does that work? I don't know. I like, really don't know. I mean, it's like, I don't Sounds I sound so cliche. I feel like we're going back to 2016, but like it's like it's like George Orwell 1984. As much as I don't like Orwell. Yeah, well, it's kind of like how you know the USA the USA only gives defensive weapons to Saudi Arabia. Right, right, right. Defense from Yemen. Yeah, that's that's all they give. Yeah, you know they 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 don't give offense. They're not helping Saudi Arabia kill the Yemenis. They're only giving them defensive weapons. And do you know the difference between an offensive gun and a defensive gun? I don't. (laughs) They look the same. They're the same. You know, it was. I've heard, I don't forget who said this, but it was like, I feel like they should just they should change the Department of the Defense back to the War Department. I feel like that would be more honest. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it really would be. I mean, it, it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous in so many ways. Um, but at the same time, I, I, was, I was wondering, you know, when it comes to these biological labs, are they actually going to, like, use this? Are they going to say that? I mean, right? Because, I mean, someone could just get the flu. Yeah. Right. Someone in Ukraine just has to get someone in Kiev has to go start coughing and immediately they're going to blame Russia for it. I mean, it's like Russia unleashes COVID super. Right. right. I mean, it's, it's based on nothing. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it, it, that, that that is kind of utterly terrifying to me. In they've, a lot attacked, of ways. Uh, they've attacked Donetsk. Ukraine just struck uh, Donetsk, I believe, today and it killed most civilians of any attack in the whole conflict so far yeah yeah and and i tweeted about this and people are you know people people are just they don't care u.s media does not care you're heartless if you don't support ukraine but if you support if you don't support you know donbass well that's just cnn person. absolutely well you know i am just exhilarated by that conference that we had i just i wish the video could be done sooner but you know they're doing their best peter the guy who recorded it is doing a great job i know he filmed it we had two cameras and it's a lot of work so i'm being patient and I'm excited to get back to writing and, you know, um, can't blame eight hours of footage. Eight hours of footage is a long time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing I am planning to do is I'm going to post all the international or the, the greetings. We got, right? yeah. So we got greetings from George Galloway, from Tara Reid, Joe Biden's rape victim, right? Um, who's a great journalist and writer, very brave. I mean, I've had the opportunity to have conversations with her. She is amazing. I've been on her podcast. Um, 
Joe Terrar, the Communist Party, Great Britain Marxist. Mount, isn't it? It's CPGBML. Yeah. What, what is it? So there's, there's a Communist Party of Britain. And yes. Why is it, they, they, why don't they just do Communist Party of Britain Marxist? I think Great Britain refers to, um, you know, so it's like, so there's Britain, right? But then like Greater Britain refers to like Northern Ireland and stuff. That's, that's what I think, but I don't know. You should ask them. Sure. Right. And they, they've kind of decided they're going to rebrand. They're just the communists. That's how they, they call themselves. But yeah. And, um, and it gets a little bit confusing. I mean, people talk about people's front of Judea. There's like, I know there's the revolutionary communist party of, 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 of Britain, Marxist Leninist. And that's, uh, Bainesites. They're followers of Hardiel Baines. The revolutionary communist party of Britain, Marxist Leninist. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then there's, there's the communist party of Britain, CPB. And then there's also CPGB. Without ML? Yeah, there's CPGB, which I believe is like a Trotskyite grouping or something. I didn't know that. I thought that was, CP, the, that was the name of the old party. Yeah, but CPB is just like the regular. It's like, I guess the original, the, the actual British Communist Party like broke into like three factions at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. So one of the factions that's around is called CPB. That's the one that's generally like, it's like CPUSA here. Yeah. And they're then, they're, they're, well, I mean, it's not hard to be better than CPUSA. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, and then, and there's another group called CPGB. And it's like some trots who like, I don't know, they're like and they took the old name. Yeah, Harry Pollitt and all the. Guys. It's some kind of weird Trotskyite regroupment, I guess. A CPGB. Maybe they're not around anymore. They used to be, right? And then there's, then there's the the, and then there's there was for a long time there's the Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain, which was a trot group. And then there's oh. the, right, and then the, and then there's that Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain Marxist Leninist. That was Cornelius Cardew, the the famed uh, musician. Me and Caleb, you know, yeah. Oh, we love Cardew. We're huge Cardew fans here. Cardew heads. Yes, and then there's the the CPGBML, right? So there you go. Um, with the great Harpal Brar. It's one thing about this conference is it's kind of slowed down. I was doing those weekly interviews and, and chats right. with Harpal Brar. We're going to resume that next week. So yeah, um, great. he's really great. He's just a, a genius, uh, you know, I mean, a brilliant mind of the working class. I've done like four conversations with him so far and they're just dynamic. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's Jyoti. Um, and then we spoke with, uh, we had a message from Max Blumenthal. Great ma message from Max Blumenthal. Um, we had a message. Who else did we have a message from? Am I forgetting somebody? So Jody, Jody Tara. George, Max, Chris Alali. Chris Alali, right, the communist candidate for city council. And it's what, uh, for Congress, right, right. And then it's David Cedillo, who, because Chris Alali announced in his video that he's actually going to run for Congress again, got huge applause. Um, and then David Cedillo, at the end of his speech about Nicaragua, he said that he's planning to run for city council. Yes, so sir. we basically had two major announcements of candidacies at our event. I mean, that's huge. That is huge. I keep saying that this event is historic, right? That people are going to look back on this and they're going to say, wow, in the middle of the war, you know, the war hysteria over here and the anti-Russian hysteria in Austin, Texas, in the heartland of America, communists gathered and unfurled the Donetsk People's Republic flag. And, you know, and under the threats of, of red, red guards of Maoist Rat Boy Association yeah, and, and Ukrainians and, and Voshites and everyone was out to get us. We, we had heavy security and we had our event and we did it. Um, and the whole world was watching this conference. You know, I mean, I mean, yesterday, our numbers on this stream was like, like, you know, it was like huge because everyone wanted to know what happened. And when those videos come out, people are just chomping at the bit to see what we did because this was a big deal. Right. Um, this is a big deal. And you know, the crazy thing is like, I remember when like the USA was attacking Libya, right? When the USA was attacking Libya, my former boss, U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark, uh, Cynthia McKinney, uh, esteemed Congresswoman of the Green Party and others, um, 
they had an event at Riverside Church because, you know, at that time, anti-imperialist forces had to get together and support Libya. So there was just a big event at Riverside Church. But this time, uh, you know, the, the USA is whipping up hysteria. And there's a war in Ukraine. Where was the anti-imperialist meeting? I didn't see one at Riverside Church. Yeah, CPUSA is basically neutral. They're saying abolish NATO, but they're more or less neutral. Yeah. Right. And and like, where was the big anti-imperialist meeting? We did it. It was us. We're. I mean, that's us. You know what the Peace Council used to do? We're doing. You know what the International Action Center used to do? We're doing. Right. What what the Answer Coalition used to do? We're doing. Yep. I mean, we are we are taking on this role. We are the anti-imperialist voices in America. I think that's something to be proud of. It's hard to do it now that, uh, you know, it's easy to take an anti-imperialist position, you know, kind of socially when the U.S. was winning. And now the U.S. is losing and there's this huge social pressure to support, you know, Ukraine and, and America. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's particularly outrageous, but, you know, we got to stand up to the lies and yeah. we did it. And, you know, a lot of Russians came and were, were moved, deeply moved by our ceremony. And uh, a lot of people were there and. I mean, it was just it was just a really positive event. I'm really, really glad we did it. I can't wait till the video's online so we can see what we had to say. It's going to be awesome. So anything else you want to say, Lily, before you go and I start answering these questions? Tell Sophie from Mars to debate me. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Sophie from Mars, uh, please debate Lily. No, no please. Uh, do you promise not to bring up her eyebrows? Caleb, you just brought it up. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. Well, there you go. You know, no holds barred, I guess. No holds barred. No holds barred. Okay. Yeah. Sophie from Mars. Uh, there debate. we go. All right. Debate, debate Lily. Sophie from Mars, debate Lily. You've heard it. Uh, if you don't do it, you, you are. You surrender. You're surrendering. You're surrendering. How's that? That'll work. All right. You're surrendering if you don't do it. All right, Lily. Well, thank you very much. Always fun to talk with you. And now we are going to answer some of the questions uh, uh, that people have. And then keep the questions rolling in, folks, because that's what we're here to do. We're doing the 20 questions thing I do at the end of my, the end of my streams. We're just going to do that. We, don't, we can't do the roll call today because then I'd be like looking at the screen and that would be all crazy. But we'll get back to that. Trust me, we're not going to be in this, not going to be in Texas forever. So I'll be back, you know, you know, running it myself and we can do that. But we'll just answer the questions. So we got how many here? We got six. So if you want me to answer a question, now is the time to send a super chat. Ben will add it to the stream. So first question, what were, le uh, would you want to, you read the question? Sure. What was Lenin's thoughts on Ukraine? Lenin was all about the right of nations to self-determination. That was a central plank of Bolshevik policy. Classical Marxism says that, you know, workers of the world unite and opposes all national divisions. In Marx's late life, he was starting to revise that position. Uh, Marx uh, supported the Irish people and their struggle for national liberation against the British. Marx started supporting Polish independence movements. And so based on that, um, you know, Lenin updated Marxism and came out with his thesis on the right of self-determination, arguing that oppressed nations have the right to fight for their independence and that oppressed nations, because they're, they're fighting for their independence, their nationalism is not inherently reactionary. Rosa Luxemburg and a lot of other Marxists said that all nationalism is inherently reactionary. Lenin said, no, nationalism of the oppressed is good. So when the Bolsheviks took power in Russia, they began granting autonomy to the different peoples throughout, throughout the Russian, the former Russian Empire, and the Ukrainians, the Moldovans, uh, you know, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, they, they, began, they, they got their own territory, and they got their own written language. Um, and you know, if it weren't for the Bolsheviks and it weren't for that policy, a lot of these people would never have had the opportunity to learn to write their own language and to speak their own language. And you know, emphasizing the languages of oppressed nationalities and national minorities 
That was a huge part of Lenin's uh, theory. And what's interesting is that 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 is kind of Putin has consistently said that he feels Lenin overdid that. That that by doing that, Lenin kind of set planted the seeds of division in the territories of the former USSR. Um, you know, and I, I think Putin might be right about that. I don't know. I'm not there. I would never want to tell a Ukrainian or a Belarusian or, or somebody uh, uh, from that region that they're not a separate nation or whatever. But basically, a lot of Russians feel uh, that, you know, that some of these nationalities are, are not full on separate nationalities. It's just a regional difference. Like Belarus is white Russia, right? Right. So it's got Russia in the name. It's just a region. It's they called it the white Russia and Ukraine. Why do they always call it the Ukraine? Because until the Russian Revolution, until the Bolsheviks created the Ukrainian Soviet Republic, it was just considered a region in the Russian Empire. It was the Ukraine. You got white Russia, you know, you can go to white Russia, you can go to the Ukraine. Well, Lenin came along and he said, no, we're going to give a, a border to all these national territories. And Putin feels like by doing that, he set the seeds of division. And what's interesting is the USA during the Cold War was always playing up the idea of great Russian chauvinism, the idea that the Russians were kind of the oppressors, the Soviet Union was the new Russian empire. But when they took the vote to dissolve the Soviet Union, this is something that, again, no one talks about. They took a vote on whether or not to dissolve the Soviet Union. The vote to keep the Soviet Union was actually higher in Ukraine and in Belarus and in Kazakhstan than it was in Russia. More Russians wanted to dissolve the Soviet Union than national minorities did, which nobody talks about, right? Um, and the reason for that was that it, these countries, their connection with the Soviet Union had been the basis of their economies, right? These were very small countries. And, and if they were not part of the Soviet Union and they were not part of a central Soviet economy, it would devastate them economically. And it did. The fall of the Soviet Union was a disaster in Russia, but it was really a disaster in Ukraine. In the 1990s, there were cities in Ukraine that only had electricity for like three or four hours a day. That's how bad it was in Ukraine. And that that the fall of the Soviet Union devastated a lot of these smaller republics, just devastated them economically. So, yes, modern Ukraine, the borders were drawn by Lenin. Stalin expanded those borders to include the Donbass, I, I believe, right? Lenin's original Ukraine did not include the Donbass region. Stalin expanded it to include the Donbass. And it was actually Khrushchev who added Crimea to Ukraine. And Khrushchev himself was Ukrainian, and that that was kind of a backroom deal, right? The idea was that there's a huge military base in Crimea. So if Crimea is included in Ukraine, then Ukraine gets more benefits as a result of that. Um, and it didn't really matter because they were all the Soviet Union anyway. It's kind of like draw, redrawing, you know, separating West Virginia from Virginia. That doesn't change the United States at all, right? But you have to remember, like, okay, so it's like, you know, where is the line? When does it, when does it become a separate nation, right? Because here in the United States, we're all, quote unquote, settlers. Right. I mean, all of our I mean, except for the Native Americans, all of our ancestors came over. And so it's not the same. But these peoples in Eurasia, they've all been living together for five, six, seven, eight thousand years. So there's all kinds of long, complicated history there. It's not the same. Right. And so it's like when you have regions where the people speak a certain dialect or their language is slightly different or they're historically Muslim rather than Christian or or they're, they're you know, they, they do this different. Where do you draw the line of what is a nation? What is it? Right. And I mean, it goes to show you that at the end of the day, I mean, the nation state, as we come to know it, that doesn't come into existence until the Treaty of Westphalia. And it's a particularly new thing in human history. And so where do you draw the line in Eurasia of what constitutes a nation? And what doesn't? Right. I mean, you know, and obviously these people that were not considered to be Russians or, or Moscovites, right, or, or whatever, that's, you know, they were discriminated against historically in the, in the Tsarist Empire, et cetera. So it's, it's complicated. And my answer about that is I don't know. I'm not Russian. 
Okay, but I'm telling you, Lenin was trying to correct the historical injustices. He was trying to grant autonomy to these regions, help these people develop their own language and their own autonomy. Originally, the Soviet Union had a house of nationalities. They had the Supreme Soviet, which was just like by population, but just kind of like in the United States, how every state has like two senators. They had this thing called the House of Nationalities, where every every nationality got like equal representation. Right. And then Stalin eventually abolished the House of Nationalities when he reformed the Soviet Constitution because it didn't make sense to have very, very tiny, tiny republics had the same number of seats. And actually, one little interesting thing is that the Soviet Union, many people don't know about this, created a Jewish autonomous region mm. uh, because their feeling was the Jews constituted a nation that, you know, just suffered discrimination. And so they created the, the Jewish autonomous region. There's a whole history there. Um, so. So, and I, I, we see the super chats, he's writing them down. Um, so yeah, that's really what Stalin's view of, of Ukraine or Lenin's view of Ukraine was. And it, it's certainly relevant in this. And it goes to show you that it's like, you know, history, history, it's like you correct one mistake and then it creates a new mistake. And then you got to correct that. And that creates a new mistake. I mean, that's how these things kind of work. And is it possible that Lenin overdid it on the, the right of self-determination for nationalities? Mm -hmm. I mean, the tradition that I come out of, the Sam Marcy tradition would say no, would say that, that you know, Sam Marcy, his book, Perestroika, he argues that the Soviet Union didn't emphasize national differences enough. But the writer Grover Fur, now Grover Fur, who's a, a, a widely, you know, among communists read historian who's like, you know, a defender of Stalin in some ways, he argues that actually the opposite, that, that, that you know, he argues more what Putin argues, which is interesting because he's not a pro-Putin guy by any means, but he, he argues that but yeah, that, that, that Stalin emphasizing the national question was, you know, was detrimental to the Soviet Union, led to their downfall. So I don't know. And neither, neither Sam Marcy nor Grover Fur was Russian. Sam Marcy was Ukrainian by birth, but he didn't live there. He left, moved out when he was four. He left Ukraine to the United States. My answer is, I don't know. I'm not from there. And I mean, that the last thing that the people in that part of the world need is me to come over and start declaring people to be nations or not nations. So I humbly as Americans, as an American say, I don't know. But that's kind of the, the Ukrainian national question is pretty important in this ongoing thing. And, and that's kind of why, why it's important and why to bring it up. And I guess, um, I guess that's an answer to your question. So I guess what's the next question we got? Next set question. Do sanctions hurt Russia? What is the benefit of large corporations pulling out of the country? Okay. So sanctions do hurt Russia. Sanctions cost lives. I mean, sanctions are economic warfare. Right. I mean, the ability, I mean, the fact that, that Russia, you know, they can't, I mean, I mean, I think they can't use YouTube in Russia. They can't, uh, you know, they can't, I mean, it's like nothing Coca-Cola. It's like, it hurts Russia right now. Now, you know, the ability to import products, the ability to not make bank transfers and, and that's devastating their economy. No question about it. It's hurting them. The sanctions on Russia are bad um, and they've harmed Russia. Now the individual corporations though, that's virtue signal. Right now, that's not sanctions. That's corporations, private companies on their own deciding we're not going to do business with Russia. That's just advertising. They want there to be a news item about it. And I wonder when this dies down, how many of them will very quietly reverse the policy. But right now, everyone's, you know, virtue signaling about how much they love Ukraine. But I don't think there's any benefit for individual corporations in this. Uh, it's just other than they get the headline. That, oh, look what a good corporation they are. You know, that's what everyone's trying to outdo each other. But sanctions do hurt people. I mean, when I was in uh, Ecuador for the World Festival of Youth and Students, and he's writing down your super chat. When I was in, in Ecuador for the World Festival of Youth and Students, I met a young man from Cuba who was in a wheelchair. He was in a wheelchair uh, because uh, of the, the medicine that he would need to treat his genetic condition was unavailable under the blockade with Cuba. When I was in Iran, I met a guy who really wanted to be an airline pilot. 
and he couldn't be an airline pilot because of the uh, the sanctions, uh, you know, that, that block air, airplane parts. They only have so many airplanes in Iran because they can't get airplane engines because of the sanctions. So, so you know, yeah, sanctions do destroy them. The sanctions on Venezuela have killed, I believe, like five to 6,000 people, if I'm not mistaken. Far more than that. Far more than that, Far according more to you. Yes, the number from 2017 to 2019 was 40,000, and there are some estimates that since then the number has increased to over 100,000. Wow. I mean, it's like, so sanctions, they, they sound benign, right? They're like, they're, they're, you know, they're an act of war, but they're an act of war in reality is what they are. So there you go. All right. Next question. Can you talk about the imminent global alignment of BRICS countries? Okay. So BRICS stands for, uh, for um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And at one point they were talking about having their own currency and then they kind of backed away from it, but they still have talks. It is a body, right? Just like we have NATO, which is a body, just like we have the European Union, which is a body, just like we have the Eurasian Economic Union of Russia, it's a body. We have the, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Belt and Road, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. It is an international grouping and it does not include the United States or any European country, right? So because, I mean, unless you consider Russia a European country, which it's, it's complicated, right? They're definitely not part of the European Union. They're definitely not part of NATO. Um, you know, so the BRICS is an alternative body and they trade with each other. They have special trade relationships. They're talking about having their own currency, kind of backed away from it. And yes, they're going to keep emerging. And the more sanctions uh, that get put on Russia and China, the more that alliances like this are going to become important. The other thing to remember about the BRICS countries. So, you know, you know, you got Russia and China, two like anti-imperialist countries. You got India, not really anti-imperialist. I mean, Modi is more independent than who was there before, but it's still, I mean, they're pretty, pretty aligned with the United States, especially against China. Um, you got, you know, South Africa, again, you know, it comes out of a kind of a Marxist-led anti-apartheid struggle, but in a lot of ways, you know, the USA, they don't really challenge US economic power and stuff. Um, uh, but then, and, and then you've got Brazil, Right. And Brazil, you know, they they kind of, you know, they had a social democratic government. Now they have Bolsonaro who was very right wing. They did vote recently to condemn Russia at the United Nations. However, at, in their speech that they made, they condemned the fertilizer sanctions on Russia because the fertilizer that Russia exports to Brazil is vital. If they don't get that Russian fertilizer, they won't be able to grow crops and people in Brazil will starve. And as my, Bolsonaro is a total puppet of the United States. You know, I mean, just a total puppet of the United States. However, even the Bolsonaro government in Brazil recognizes how economically tied Brazil is to Russia. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, obviously Lula da Silva and the socialists there are much more tied to Russia than Bolsonaro is. But even under Bolsonaro, they can't totally just, just jump on the bandwagon against Russia. They have to, on some level, criticize the sanctions because... Their economy is, is Russian. And I've been to Brazil. I spoke at a conference, an amazing conference of the Trade Union Center. I gave a talk about oil price manipulation. It was during the, the crisis. I was invited there when they were you know, removing Dilma Rousseff from office during the impeachment, basically. And at that trade union conference I went to, it was a conference of trade unionists from Brazil. Most of them were, were supporters of Bolivarianism and socialism. Members of the Brazilian Senate spoke there, et cetera. A number of Russians were there because Russia's economic relationship with Brazil is very deep at this point. So, so that's what you have to remember. The same with India. Again, Modi, is, he's more independent, but he's not an anti-imperialist. He's not a socialist. He's not a Marxist. He's not, you know, he, it, it, it's not an anti-imperialist state by any means, but Russia does a lot of business there. And 
you know, China used to, now they've kind of thrown down against China, but they're not willing to fully throw down against Russia. They've been neutral in this whole Ukraine situation. So, you know, that's, you know, BRICS is an interesting development. We shall see what happens next. What's next? What's the next question? Next question. What is the Marxist position on authoritarian versus liberal and nationalist versus globalist divisions? Hmm. Okay, well, first of all, um, both of those designations, authoritarian and nationalist, are kind of fake. They really are. Um, you know, so authoritarian versus liberal, right, is the first dichotomy, hmm. right? Yeah. And nationalist versus globalist. Okay, well, first of all, Authoritarianism is the result of scarcity. When a society is underdeveloped, when there is instability in a country, you are going to have a level of authoritarianism. If you go to any developing country, I don't care what their politics are, if you go to any, any impoverished country around the world, one thing that people will always tell you is don't call the cops. Right? I mean, if you go to, you know, you go to South America, you go to Asia, you go to, you, you go to Africa, people will always say don't call the cops because in a developing country, those cops are going to want to bribe. Here in the United States, you try to bribe a cop, you're going to jail for bribery. But in, you know, in, in developing countries, uh, when the cops show up, if you don't bribe them, they're going to find something because they're in that for a bribe. They don't get paid enough. And it's just kind of this, you know, you have much more blatant, uh, you know, rule by the barrel of the gun. And so the cops show up, they're going to want to bribe. And so they always say never call the police in a developing country. Right. In developing countries, uh, often, you know, the, the state is under much more threat. There's more instability in society. There's more drug gangs terrorist groups, there's more poverty, there's more instability. So you're going to have a higher level of authoritarianism. And that's for any country in the developing world. That the, the road to freedom is economic development. And when countries become more prosperous and more stable, they have a higher level of freedom. No one on the planet Earth was talking about human rights and freedom of speech and freedom of religion until like the 1400s in Europe. And was that because people were just evil until then? People were just evil. And then suddenly in the 1400s, you know, they woke up and said, maybe people should have freedom. Of course not. It was no society had achieved the level of development. And with the, the emergence of like modern capitalism in Europe, you started to have people coming out and saying, well, maybe we should have freedom of speech. Maybe we should have freedom of assembly. Right. And that the relationship between authoritarianism and, and economics must be understood. The way we talk about authoritarianism, human rights in the West, it's always framed as a moral issue. There's good countries that have freedom. There's bad countries that don't. And even that narrative is hypocritical because we know there's a lot of quote unquote bad countries the U.S. is aligned with, like Saudi Arabia, you know, like uh, like you know the absolute monarchies in the Middle East, like Nigeria, you know, like you know where they slaughtered the Shia Muslim community. There are many authoritarian countries the U.S.A. backs. So even that narrative is not honest. But that narrative itself doesn't get to the essence of it. That the road to liberty and freedom is the road of economic development. And if you look at China, for example, if you look at during the Mao years, they were much more authoritarian than they are now. There's way more freedom of speech in China now than there was during the, the Mao years. There's way more freedom of religion in China now than there was during the Mao years. And why is that? Because China was so much poorer. And when you're a poor country, when you're unstable, poverty necessitates authoritarianism. Whereas economic development is the road to freedom. The reason in the United States that we're able to get on here and make these streams, we might not be able to for much longer, but the reason we're able to make these streams, the reason I'm able to say what I'm saying, is because USA is stable enough that there's no danger of people who agree with me, you know, taking over control of the government. You know, there's no danger of that, right? The USA is a stable society. We're not on the brink of civil war or revolution and people are not deeply impoverished. And so there's no need for the state to crack down on it. But if we were in an impoverished country, 
where there was instability, where there was extreme amount of poverty, and people like me talking this way could potentially lead to, you know, instability, they would probably, it would be a necessity for whoever was in power to silence people like us. And that that's what people don't understand is that freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, these things are directly related to development and economics. And that's, that's that first one about authoritarian versus uh, liberal, right? And that I would like every society to be totally free. And ultimately the goal is for to have a world with so much abundance of prosperity, we don't need a government at all. That's the ultimate goal, right? Is a world with so much prosperity and abundance that the state itself can fade away. People can kind of just do what they want, right? But the road to that is, is socialism and all of that. But but ultimately, I want a society that's so quote unquote liberal or so open that that people can just do whatever they want. I mean, even beyond the freedoms we have here in the West. So so that's that's how I view that question. Now, the other one is about nationalism versus globalism. Well, there is a global economy. There is a global economy. There's no getting around that. No country can just put up a wall and isolate itself from the rest of the world. However, that global economy is not fair. That global economy, uh, it impoverishes countries in the developing world. And increasingly, it's impoverishing the first world. There are, you know, if you want to talk about globalists, there are institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. There's neoliberalism, which is a model of global trade that is making the world poorer and making certain wealthy corporations and monopolies wealthier, right? And so when right-wingers called Jeff Bezos or George Soros or Bill Gates globalists, what they're saying is that these are super international oligarchs who are enriching themselves and making the world poor. And I'm against that. So if, I, if that's what being anti-globalist means, that's what I'm against. Um, and, and then when you say nationalist, what does nationalist mean? Well, no country is going to be able to cut itself off. Hmm. However, you know, countries like Nicaragua, countries like Russia, countries like Venezuela, they want to be part of the global economy, but they say we're not just going to roll over and do what the IMF and the World Bank says. We're going to participate in the global economy on our terms, right? We're going to demand free, fair trade. We're going to protect our own industries. We're going to regulate our own economies. And we're not going to have to go to the World Trade Organization and beg for the right to pass a new, like, you know, minimum wage law. So are they nationalists in that sense? They wouldn't call themselves nationalists. They would just say we're socialists, we're protecting our people. So, so if nationalism means you know, regulating your economy in a way that benefits your people and doing so in a way that stands up to international financial institutions that benefit you know, certain big corporations based in the West, I guess I'm a nationalist. But I don't think that that's a fair dichotomy because China is creating a new form of globalism. What they're doing with the One Belt and One Road that is globalism. They're trying to build a global economy, but they're doing it in a much better way. They're going to developing countries where they're building hospitals, building schools, building infrastructure, and they're deepening international business ties. But they're doing it in a way that doesn't you know, make the countries poorer. It actually benefits the countries economically. So you know, being anti-globalist is, is not correct because there's going to be a global economy, but we can be against imperialism, which is capitalist globalization, the global system of monopoly capitalism. And being nationalist isn't exactly right because it's not a question of being nationalist. It's a question of, of fighting for the working class and protecting people. And, you know, in Venezuela, Nicaragua, Russia, they got no problem with the Belt and Road, but they do have a problem with the IMF and the World Bank, World Trade Organization. So it's, it, it's, it's again, it's kind of like this liberal democracy versus authoritarianism debate. This is kind of a false dichotomy. Um, and it's the way that the Western imperialists like to frame these conversations. And they make it about that because, I mean, of course, do you want a society that's more authoritarian? You want to have more freedom. I want more freedom. Don't you want freedom? Oh, well, then I guess we have to agree with the imperialists. Now, do you think that countries are going to be able to just completely isolate? No, we want to be able to buy computers that are made in other countries. And so, I mean, it's it's like, so they win. If they frame it that way, it's a, turn, it's a way of framing the argument where they always win. 
So I, and I'm, I, I don't agree. So, so there you go. What's the next question? Your take on the book on Karl Marx and the close of his system by Eugene von Baum Bauer. I have never, this is one of those, I've never heard of Eugene von Baum Bauer. I have never heard of him. So I have no idea. Hmm. Okay, well, moving on then. Yes. Would you do a William Z. Foster audio? If I had the time, I mean, I, I, if I had the time, I might, you know, but I mean, I have other, other, other things to do, like doing these streams and writing my own books and stuff, but I wouldn't be opposed to it. I mean, I, I would love to see more of William C. Foster's books available on audiobook. Um, you know, uh, Sophia and, um, and uh, was it Sophia and what's the other guy's name? They did, you know, the, the introduction and chapter one of my bread tube book as audiobooks, and they're already out there. And then Charlotte, um, you know, she did my, my entire Kamala Harris book. Uh, as an audiobook. And if fans want to step up to the plate and do that, that's awesome. You know, and don't just do it for my works, do it for William Z. Foster, do it for Gus Hall. We need, you know, a lot of people listen to books, right? I, for one, I cannot read fiction. I have to listen to fiction. Yeah. I just, I, my mind wanders. I can read nonfiction, but if it's fiction, I have to listen to it as an audiobook, yeah. right? Because I just, in order to hold my attention, I need to hear it as an audio. I'm more of an audio guy. I write like I, I talk. That's why I make, I, there was the, what's the kind of typo where it's like you, 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 it's it, the word sounds the same, but it's spelled differently. Uh, I make that typo loads, right? I use the wrong there. Yeah. I use the wrong two because I'm not thinking I'm, I'm writing as I talk, right? So I'm a more audio kind of guy. So there you go. Next question. Yes. All right. Could the economic difficulties from sanctions cause the KPRF to take power in Russia? I don't know. Um, you know, uh, you know, Politics in Russia is definitely going to be impacted by these events, and it already has. I mean, look, I mean, Russia, you know, um, you know, many people have commented that Putin seems to have two sides. On the one hand, he is like, uh, you know, he's, he's Russian and he's you know, drawing from Russia's heritage and all that. On the other hand, there's, there's, there's an aspect of Putin where he wants to be more Western and he wants Russia to be more like uh, Norway or Sweden or a Western, Western European country. And on the other hand, some people see him as, as vehemently anti-Western and Putin kind of goes back and forth. But with these sanctions that are being imposed on Russia, this is forcing Russia to get closer to China economically. It's forcing Russia to nationalize various industries. A lot of the companies that are being pulled out are being nationalized. And so Russia is going to move in a more anti-imperialist and more socialistic direction. That's inevitable. Now, does that lead to the Communist Party taking power again? I don't know. Um, you know, uh, Jeff Munson, uh, you know, is an American, uh, um, uh, an American uh, fighter. Right? Uh, what is it? Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, mixed martial arts, I believe. Mm. Uh, Jeff Munson, an American fighter, he moved to Russia um, and he, you know, he joined the Communist Party and he was very frustrated with the Communist Party. He felt like the Communist Party of the Russian Federation had big problems. So, so now he's a member of United Russia. He went to Russia, joined the Communist Party, got frustrated. Now he's in another party. And, you know, Don Quarter, my good friend, uh, you know, he's in Russia. He's done a lot of interviews with people in the Russian Communist Party and also in the other party, the Communist of Russia Party, which is like another communist party in Russia. Uh, it's, a bit, it's quite a bit smaller than the, the Russian Communist Party. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, there are a lot of communist groups in Russia, let me just add, that have no relevance whatsoever. You know, in the United States, we've got a million communist parties that don't mean jack shit, right? But in Russia, the communist party is like a real party. They get like 10 to 15% of the vote in elections. They Even have, more recently. Yeah, and they have seats in the government. That's like a real political party, okay? Um, and the communists of Russia, they have a couple seats. So they are like, you know, they're not as big as the communist party. But then there's also a million tiny little irrelevant sects that don't matter. The communist workers party of Russia. It's like people say, well, the communist workers party of Russia said this. It's like, okay, well, that's three people in a room. I don't care. 
you know, you know, and it's like, oh, the, the Russian Trotskyite fourth international, it's like, that's two people. I don't care. You know, you know, um, so, you know, it, you know, you have to keep that in mind. And, and I've started to think like that because I aspire, and that's, that's been my problem is American communist groups. They're all like these irrelevant communist groups in Russia. I have studied what groups that matter, like the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, like the Socialist Unity Center of India, like the, you know, I mean, you know, the Communist Party of India Marxist. CPI is intended to sound like communist groups that matter in other countries, not irrelevant sects. In the United States, other than like DSA, all we have are irrelevant sects. And DSA is basically a Democratic Party campaigning operation. But, but you know, for the most part, any Marxist, leftist, socialist group in the United States is an irrelevant sect. It doesn't matter. And because of that, um, uh, because of that, because of that, um, you know, trying to appease them doesn't really matter. But, you know, is this crisis going to lead to the Communist Party coming back to power? I don't think so. Let me just put it that way. I think it will lead to Russia becoming more socialistic. I, I think it will lead to stronger pride in, in Russia's Soviet heritage. I believe it will lead to Russia being further economically isolated from the West and having more state control over its economy. Um, but will it lead to the Communist Party becoming the ruling party? I don't think so. And I'll say that based on what I've seen in the interviews that Don has done on his channel about the Communist Party and some of their problems and all of that. You have to remember the Communist Party, I mean, not this part, not the KPRF, but the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was in power for many decades, right? And, you know, and, and the Soviet Union's never going to come back, right? And I think that there are a lot of people in Russia that say, okay, I'm proud of the Soviet history and all that, but I don't want the Soviet Union to come back. The Soviet Union collapsed for a reason. And um, I think that you know, that's why uh, Zhuganov never could win an election was because he was basically people saw him, regardless of what he said, they saw him as the candidate who wanted to restore the Soviet Union. Soviet Union is not going to come back. And, uh, you know, Putin, one of the things that he said that has made him very popular, and then we'll move to the next question. One of the things that Putin has said that has made him very popular is he said, whoever, whoever does not mourn the loss of the Soviet Union has no heart. But he, he also said, whoever wants to restore the Soviet Union has no brain. Um, and that's kind of a, a bold, you know, it's kind of a, a bold statement to make, but there's an element of truth in that. True, Putin's not trying to restore the Soviet Union right now with, with this, this thing, and, and that Soviet Union is not going to come back. Russia will move in a more anti-imperialist and socialist direction. Pride in the Soviet history will definitely increase, but the Soviet Union's not going to come back. Next question. All right. Where can I find an alternative perspective, perspective on Russia's activities in Ukraine? Well, you can't find it on YouTube unless you listen to me. I mean, uh, RT is banned from YouTube, but go to Rumble and watch RT on Rumble. Go to RT.com and you can get the Rumble stream. You can watch it on Rumble. Uh, you can watch it on Rockfin. Listen to Jackson Hinkle on Rockfin. Listen to Jimmy Dore. Listen to Max Blumenthal. You know, that's where you can you can find an alternative perspective. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, they've banned RT so many places. And isn't that confirmation that they're lying? I mean, why are they so afraid of the pro-Russian viewpoint being out there? I mean, what, what are they so scared of? If we're so wrong, right, why, why, why are they so afraid of us? You know, you know, I mean, if anything, right, if they really were so confident in their position, they would want us out there to show how wrong we are and they would use us as an example. But they're so determined to silence us, to blast us off of social media, shows that, uh, shows that they're wrong. But Rumble has been a good outlet, Rumble uh, and Rockfin. Those are... Odyssey. We're on Rockfin right now. Go and sign up on Rockfin. I don't know how much longer this YouTube channel is going to last, folks. I'm just saying. Now, I am definitely not leaving voluntarily. I'm going to fight to be on this platform as long as I possibly can. Um, but uh, don't know how much longer it's going to be here. So Rockfin is where I'm staying. And I'm on Odyssey, too. I'm on Odyssey. That's true. You know, it's not, it's not live on Odyssey. We're not streaming, but it'll go. It'll be like automatically uploaded afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I'm on Odyssey. I'm on Rockfin. 
Um, we're on Rockfin right now. So there you go. Next question. Oh, and just a few more left. Why did Putin let Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania join NATO? Why did he let them? I mean, they're independent countries. He did not have that sovereignty. They weren't happy about it when they did. But you have to remember also that, uh, that, that Ukraine has a virulently anti-Russian government that is tearing down World War II memorials. Now, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, these are countries that, that while there might be differences and while they may be closer to the United States, they may be members of NATO. It's not like they didn't come to power in a vicious coup and start tearing down the World War II memorials and start persecuting and bombing the Russian-speaking peoples of their of their region. That's not what happened, right? That that first of all, they're independent countries, so, so in theory, Russia doesn't have the right to, to tell them, right? In theory, but Russia would obviously feel threatened, and Russia does feel threatened about NATO expanding to those countries, and they have voiced that concern. But on top of that, the con you know the context of them joining NATO was not an ugly coup where people got burned alive in the House of Trade Unions. A little bit different, right? So, so it's a little bit different. All right, next question. How would you bring more academically oriented Marxists to Marxism Leninism? Well, look, for me, it just seemed like a no-brainer because my whole life I was told communism failed everywhere it's ever been tried. Never, never worked, right? Communism just doesn't work, just doesn't work. And um, you know, when I discovered basic economic data that it did, I thought, okay, well, then I have to, I have to obviously embrace the kind of communism that, that did work. But that said, at the same time, you know, I mean, the Soviet Union is not coming back, right? You know, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, these countries want to be more like China. And so as much as I'm all for studying Marxism, Leninism, and I, I draw most heavily from Marxism, Leninism, I encourage people to study Baathism, Baathist Arab Socialism. I encourage people to study, you know, we published our own edition of the Green Book by Gaddafi, not a Marxist, but a socialist and an anti-imperialist aligned with the communist countries. Uh, you know, and, you know, I encourage people to study Christian socialism. I encourage people to study uh, uh, Bolivarian socialism, which is not ML. I mean, you, you live in Nicaragua and it's not ML. I mean, right? I mean, Sandinistas, they're not ML. There's some, you know, similarities. But no, yeah, it, Sandinistas don't identify with Marxism. Yeah, yeah. They, they draw from it. They know it very mm -hmm. well. But that's that's it's their own kind of unique tradition. And, uh, you know, that's what I encourage people to do. I don't I want people to become dogmatic MLs. But Lenin's book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, is one of the most important books published in world history. If you want to understand how the world economy works, you got to read that. And I actually made this argument when I was in college because I took political science. And I remember I brought Lenin's book, The State and Revolution, and I held it up and I said, you know, at one point, two thirds of humanity lived under governments whose constitutions explicitly referenced Marxism, Leninism, i.e. the theory of government in this book. So if there's any book you should read when you're studying politics, especially global politics, you want to understand global political systems, you should read The State and Revolution by Lenin. That is the theory of the state that China is based on, that a number of African countries, their constitutions are, were based on, that a number of, uh, you know, uh, the Cuba is based on, that, uh, you know, North Korea is based on, that, I mean, you know, South Yemen for a long time. I mean, many, many countries in the world, their theory of government is based on the writing in that book. So why would you not read that at the college level? But it was never assigned to me. Uh, it was assigned to me in a philosophy class once, but it was never assigned to me in political science. Well, that, that should be like basic. So, you know, Marxism, Leninism, study Marxism, Leninism, learn Marxism, Leninism, do it. But uh, the attitude that I have toward all revolutionary movements, all anti-imperialists, study all of them, but blindly follow none of them, but constantly be trying to figure out a way that we can figure out a model that will work in this country. That's what we need to do. We need to find a formula for winning socialism in the United States. All right. Last question. Why do you think Zelensky pushes for a no-fly zone? 
Because the goal of this conflict on the part of Zelensky, who's just a puppet of the United States, is not to bring peace to Ukraine. He doesn't care about the Ukrainians who are dying right now. He doesn't. He doesn't want to bring peace to Ukraine. His job is to fight Russia. And he is basically just a puppet. And his goal is to keep this conflict going as long as possible and to fight Russia. And I see that last super chat there. Yeah, we got one more. I have read it. The Last Soviet Republic by Stuart uh, Parker. I have read it. It's a great book about Belarus and their history and, and Alexander Lukashenko, et cetera. It's a tremendous book, and I do recommend it. I'd have to check that one. Yeah, I have it. It's a, it's a great book. I think I gave away one copy, and so I have another one. It's a tremendous book. All right, so we're going to show the sign-off video, um, and then we're going to be done. Sound Sounds good? great. All right. In the struggle against U.S. imperialism, is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night, folks. Good night.